Gaming is a hobby many of us enjoy, and for most of us, it's a hobby that we have enjoyed for the majority of our lives. The video game industry has grown and changed so much since the start of our fandom, and we have all grown and changed with it. But how did us growing up affect the games that we played, and how did the games industry's growth affect us as we grew? Welcome to Insert Coin, where we take a walk down memory lane to answer those very questions and discuss our personal history with video games. One quarter at a time. Hey, what's up and welcome to episode five of Insert Coin, the interview show where we divide our lives into quarters and talk about all the games and systems we loved during those times. Joining me today is a very special guest, co-host of one of the longest running gaming podcasts in the world, Player One Podcast, also the best game journalist I've ever seen in person, a man whose main major export is everything there is to know about the Sega Genesis. He literally does... What Nintendo, ladies and gentlemen, Greg Seward. How are you doing, Greg? Good. Thanks for having me. That's the uh, that's the nicest intro I've ever had. Nice, nice. I I had a, I have a script for that intro right in front of me. I was reading <laughs> off it. Before we jump into the interview, though, I'll give you a quick breakdown on how this show works. It's pretty simple. What we do is we divide the guest age by four and use each quarter of the of our lives to as a jump in point to chat about all the games we loved and the fond memories we had gaming during those times. So with that being said, Greg, all I need from you is the year that you were born, if you're comfortable disclosing <laughs> that information. Yeah, sure. It's uh, 1976. 1976. So that would put the first quarter uh, between 1976 and 1987. Before we start talking about it, though, let's put one coin into the arcade time machine that we have with us and take a quick peek into what gaming was like from 1976 to 1987. I hope you like this, Greg. I made this for you. Which of these games is the closest thing to the real thing? A, in television, Major League Baseball. B, Hey, Joey, what's she really like? She's the most exciting woman I ever met. Yeah? Atari introduces the woman of the year, Ms. Pac-Man. don't you know? I'm more than Pac-Man with a bow. Reach for Ms. Pac-Man. Reach, reach, reach for Atari. It's the video game that lets you pretend you're E.T., running away from secret agents, falling into danger, finding a phone to call home, and discovering the best thing on earth, a friend. E.T., only from Atari. So you think you're fast enough to beat the bomber? I don't think so. Kaboom! By Activision. Don't sneeze. Don't even blink. Because the faster you get, the faster he gets. And if you miss, kaboom! By Activision. Watch Zelda become a legend on your Nintendo Entertainment System. Zelda! 
1976 to 1987, the era where an alien from outer space tried to kill console gaming as we know it, (laughs) and it would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for one brave Italian plumber. Greg, in this era of your gaming life, what devices did you game on? What was your favorite? And do you remember how you got them? Uh, Yeah, for the most part, uh, I was playing on the Atari 2600. <clears throat> in the very early 80s i'm just by the way just sitting here listening to that intro and it's just like i'm like watching cartoons on saturday morning eating a bowl of like fruit loops and because i mean pole position oh my god Watch you know what saturday i morning. tried my hardest to figure out where in pole position the song was the best place to like cut because i didn't want to play the whole song and there wasn't a best place i had to no. play the whole song i literally played the whole song <laughs> so that's why it was like the longest one but i like it that was the first time i heard it too when you showed it to me so i had to include that i was waiting for Love the it. end i couldn't wait for the end for you to see it but anyway it's nothing to do with the video game but no such an amazing <laughs> intro yeah no uh i mean from back early i don't even remember where we got our 2600 i actually before when when we were talking about me coming on this show i i have my mom happened to be over and i was just like do you remember where we got our Atari 2600? And um, she was telling me that my dad had bought it with my my uncle um, when he was like in the 70s, when he was like 18. So that's why we had it. But that's what I spent the earliest part of my life playing was uh, on Atari 2600. Between that and my stepdad also had it. And I played a lot of uh, a lot of um, Dodgem, Combat, Centipede, Frogger. Kaboom, which you had in that intro as well, which I absolutely loved. Anything from Activision was great back then. But um, <laughs> you know what I what I really played with um, the most during this this quarter uh, was the NES, for sure. I mean that was that 
that was what got me into video games. I mean, I liked video games. You know, I liked playing Atari and I was <clears throat> pretty young when the crash had happened. And of course, the fallout of the crash was that uh, games were super cheap um, because everyone was trying to really you, you go to like Zellers. Canadian, old Canadians will know the name Zellers. Um, and there'd be like a bin of new Atari games or anything, Coleco and television, whatever what they had left. Basically, they were trying to get rid of that you could get for like pennies, right? Like they, I think like a buck, really pennies. Like yeah, I mean it was they were they were trying to get rid of them. They were they were poisonous at that point. So a lot a lot of friends that I knew had just like um like my friend Dave, his parents had a cedar chest full of loose Atari twenty six hundred games. They must have had a hundred, really. But they didn't buy them when they were new. They bought them after the crash. So you know, we we me and my friends all played games then, and we liked them. But it was more of like we're six seven years old, and video games are cool. But um, getting my Nintendo, my brother and I getting our Nintendo was when my I sort of fell in love with video games for sure. So just just for people that might not know exactly uh, what the crash is that he's referring to and you can correct me if i'm wrong because this is just me uh i didn't live it so this is just kind of like secondhand knowledge but basically a movie came out called et you might have heard of it. it's a pretty big movie and uh, it was super successful at the box office as you can imagine so obviously uh they wanted to make a, a video game version of this but the problem is is they decided to make the game uh you probably know the exact time here but it was like a couple months or something like that before yeah, Christmas. Some ridiculous amount. Of it time. was like late summer, I think, and they wanted it out uh, in time for like Black Friday, Christmas. So they just figured they can make whatever they can do in that amount of time, regardless if it's good or not, and they can sell it for how much was like a, a retail game back then? Oh, I don't know, um, but I did something in one of my YouTube videos recently. I was looking at that, and the prices were dropping. I think it was like thirty nine bucks. Americans are probably like 40 bucks Canadian. Yeah, which is probably like rough, like with inflation, it's probably close to what a a game is today, like 90 bucks after tax or whatever. So they wanted to basically sell garbage for 90 bucks and uh, everyone bought it because everyone knows ET is is awesome or whatever. And a lot of people were disappointed with that. And it really made them feel like they they kind of got swindled and lost their money. And then they stopped trusting games because there wasn't like a Nintendo seal of approval or anything like that. It was really Mm -hmm. kind of the wild, wild west. So People got disenfranchised with 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 that when they know that they could spend that much money and potentially get something that's pretty garbage. Yeah, and the ET game is kind of the ultimate. It was kind of the final straw. But I, I think it's interesting um, when you really look back at that era that ET gets blamed for that. But it was kind of like I think the straw that broke the camel's back. Okay. Like if you um, if you look at things like uh, Pac Man on the Atari twenty six hundred, I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's absolutely awful. Really? And, um, yeah, it's terrible. I love it. But be, it was because it was a chance to play Pac-Man at home. It's nothing like the arcade game. Um, and I forget the name of the guy at Atari who ported it. But it was another example of what you were talking about where they got the license because Pac-Man was massive. I mean, you know, Pac-Man fever was a thing and basically gave this guy, I think his name was Todd. I can't for, I can't remember his last name. Gave this guy like uh, a, a couple weeks or something, something, something ridiculous where he just threw it together because Atari programmers at that time too, they were making royalties based on how their game sold. So this actually made this guy a lot of money and it was Pac-Man and it didn't matter how good it was because it was Pac-Man. Right. So they, he threw something together. It went out the door. It sold really well. But I think if you look at stuff like that, you start to realize like they were already chipping away at the goodwill in the early eighties, even before ET happened. 
Um, and and ET was just again, like I said, kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, at the same time, the the market was being flooded with once once Activision opened the doors and made it legal for third parties to release games on the twenty six hundred. Everybody was doing it, like chase the chuck wagon. Like, there, there was a game that that a dog food company put out. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> Everybody was putting out games because it was just a license to print money. And so, yeah, I mean, again, Atari, E.T. was kind of the one everyone points to. And Howard Scott Warshaw, who who created that game, has kind of uh, traded on that fact. I mean, his he, he just released a book called um, Once Upon Atari. And uh, he talks all about that. And actually, that's based on a DVD documentary series he did called Once Upon Atari that I highly recommend where he interviews a bunch of people he used to work with at Atari. And that story okay. about Pac-Man is in there as well. Um, so I mean, it was, it was, everyone was just trying to make a buck as fast as they could mm-hmm. on that because it was all, everyone always believed it was going to be a fad. Right. Right. So. But then a little, a little man in Japan named Shigeru Miyamoto teamed up with a, a really brave and awesome plumber. And he got you a Nintendo entertainment system. Do you remember how that transaction occurred? I absolutely do. And it's one of my favorite stories. Um, so we got my brother and I got our Nintendo, I want to say in like 87 or 88. So it was right at the end of this. So we went a long time without having any video games. And um, of course, I was in grade school, elementary school at the time. So excuse me, I had friends that had an NES. And so did my brother. And we both desperately wanted one. And, uh, you know, but I mean, we we were like a single my parents were divorced by that point. We were a single income family. Uh, my dad uh, and my uncle ran a race team, a race car. So that's where all their money went. And uh, my brother was also in hockey. So there wasn't a lot of extra money around. So we didn't get a Nintendo. Uh, and one Christmas we had both asked for it. And we didn't get one. And it was I don't remember how soon it was after, but I want to say it was like a week after Christmas we got into a conversation with my dad. There was no kicking and screaming and fighting, but we had badgered him for a week saying, we want a Nintendo. We want a Nintendo. And my dad, who was not a stupid man, um, said, okay, look, if you can find one for sale tonight, this was probably about 5 p.m. So in stores would have been open until about nine. If you can find one for sale tonight, I will buy it for you. And wow. this was right after Christmas. And this was when Nintendo was like the hottest toy. So he, what he knew is that it wasn't possible. There's no internet. There's no, you can't check store right. stock online. Right. It was not going to be possible for us to find one. So my brother and I worked the phone for two and a half hours, calling every store that we could think of in the yellow pages. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we found one in uh, a place called Penhorn Mall. Uh, which was the next city over in Dartmouth. I'm in Halifax, and yeah, the next big city fan over of the Dartmouth. playground over at Penhorn Mall. There you go. We found one. It was an action set. It was the one that came with the zapper, not the robot, but just the zapper. So Duck Hunt and Mario Brothers. And my dad was a man of his word. There was it was in a blizzard, <laughs> and we went out and climbed in the car in the middle of the night uh, in the snowstorm. And this was an old Oldsmobile that he had that the door, the passenger side door didn't even work. So we would pull the window down and climb in through the window, like the Dukes of Hazard. Oh my God. And drove over to Dartmouth and bought our Nintendo entertainment system. And that's how we got, that's how I got into video games. And that's how we got our Nintendo. Nothing will stop you. No, it was amazing. And then that's- we got to listen to my dad talk about how, how talk himself into it. It's like, Oh, it's really good for hand-eye coordination. So this is a good idea. Anyway. <laughs> 
So it's true. It's true. Yeah. I no. use that all the time and try to justify how much I play <laughs> video games. Uh, do you remember any like marquee? Like I'm assuming this, the zapper came with the Mario duck hunt combo, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we, you know, we played a lot of that right off the bat, but, um, up until that point, um, uh, my cousin had an NES and, um, we didn't have Nintendo power up here at the time. Uh, but we had a free newsletter called Nintendo power flash. So it was like, if you registered your system, um, they basically would take some pages of Nintendo power in the United States and would repackage them as these, like, I have a couple of these around, They're like these 10 page newsletters but then it was like you know um branded for canada so it was nintendo power flash it was called the letters were all from canadian uh players and stuff like that and you know but it would be like um here's four pages of zelda 2 maps you know what i mean like that that sort of stuff that they would take out of nintendo power so that's what he was playing at the time when we got our nes so that whatever year that came out is probably the year we got our nintendo so i was all about playing zelda 2 so that was one of the very first games that we ended up getting for it that and simon's quest actually castlevania 2 were the two like very first games that i got for my nintendo and those games are both like the black sheep of their respective franchises and i adore both of them just because they were like my first Mm -hmm. big nintendo games at the time so yeah so what do you think like since you since you kind of were um gaming before and after the almost death of of gaming what uh, is it just that mario is so good and the console itself was so fun to play that that kind of pulled people or changed people's perception um or like is there something with the marketing like wh- what was it like to kind of or maybe you never even lost faith in video games although you did say that you didn't play a ton until you got the nes but what was it that kind of uh that you think that kind of changed people's minds about about the hobby in general or like the quality of of what you're buying i think those of us who were nintendo kids at least my generation i mean we were old we're all, all old enough to have played atari 2600 and ColecoVision and Intellivision and things like that but we really weren't old enough to be aware of what was going on you know what i mean like i know for me personally um i was like under 10 years old when the crash happened so i mean okay. i i wasn't really aware that video games ever really went away but <clears throat> from a non-business standpoint, and I think it's pretty obvious to see if you turn on, like, say, Pitfall on the 2600, that's great. It's a, it's a great game, you know, and, and it plays all right with that old joystick. But like when you put on Super Mario Brothers next to that, there's really no comparison. I mean, yeah. it was a quantum leap ahead, right? It was it was really new and it felt it, it felt very high tech compared to what we had been playing because you know up until that point those of us who were old enough to remember by the time we were playing that the the original sort of generation of 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 consoles they were like seven or eight years old right and i know that when the nes came here it was pretty old as well it was like three or four years old before it actually got released in north america but it still was such a quantum leap forward from what we had been playing you know like you had music that sounded more like music and you had so many colors and you had like really smooth scrolling on the Nintendo, which you didn't have on, on most games for the, for the 2600, the 2600 library was so made up. The good games were so made up of those single screen arcade games, which were great, Mm -hmm. but they were big and blocky and they, they only looked like the arcade game in as much as you could sort of envision that they looked like the arcade game. Whereas, you know, you play Pac-Man on the NES 
or Miss Pac-Man or Galaga or any of those. And they looked pretty much like what you were playing in the arcade. Right. Right. So I think that was the big thing. Yeah, I, re- I remember like uh, I'm a huge fan of of uh, like Doom and Id and like their history. I did I, I kind of watch and read a lot about that. And I remember um, before they formed Id when they worked at um, I think it was a magazine. I can't remember the name of it. You probably do. Um, but they they were really like being like basically a rocket scientist like John Carmack's literally a rocket scientist. Mm-hmm. He saw the the smooth scrolling that you were mentioned in Mario and thought that was uh, insane because the, like he's used to working on PCs, which were on paper, like more powerful than an NES by a lot, like th- they're like raw computational power, but there was nothing on PC that could do that. There's no games that could do that. And he had to like, like basically like use like bubble gum and duct tape to try to get like a Mario clone to kind of resemble that. And, and he ended up turning that into like a, a profitable, uh, game. I think it's, what is it called? Uh, it's like the invader or it's captain something it's basically a mario clone uh i can't believe i'm blanking on it but anyway that ended up spawning into making enough money to kind of make it and you know the rest is history there so that must have been a a pretty big leap but my question is is like how do you as a nine-year-old uh and your brother i don't know if he's older or younger but i'm assuming he's close to nine at that point how do you go from knowing what a atari looks like and plays like to wanting the nes like was there like kiosk and stores does your buddies have them or like because like I don't think that I mean maybe you can kind of uh, get the sense of of that quantum leap that you're talking about from a commercial on TV, uh, but I don't know. Like I wasn't really paying attention to commercials when I was a kid, so like that isn't the stuff that would grab me. It was going to a future shop and and playing the demo in the kiosk and stuff like that. Right. I'm sure that there were store displays. Uh, that was probably a big part of it. Uh, probably like a Radio Shack or something like that. Mm-hmm. I know I spent a lot of. Uh, the 80s and 90s sort of staring longingly at computer games at Radio Shack because they always had those sort of running on a loop and everything um, more in the 90s. But <clears throat> commercials were definitely part of it. Like, you know, um, when you'd see commercials for, say, Mike Tyson, I mean, it looked like a cartoon. Right. But the big thing was, was really the, that cousin that I talked about when we would go visit them, they had a Nintendo. So that's that's where I got to experience it and, you know, sort of fell in love with it. Plus, peer pressure is a huge factor at that age and the nes was like the the most popular toy so we had lots of friends that had an nes so you had a chance to go over not only a chance to go over and play it but also there was an element of being part of the group and i mean one of my one of my dearest friends and one of my best my my most important friendships in my life completely started because i had a nintendo um, it was, you know, it was my, my friend, Dave, he, we had been friends. We'd been going to school together since primary, but you know, and we, we would hang out a little bit, but I remember vividly like in the schoolyard, whichever school I was at at the time, him talking to another mutual friend about, uh, whatever Nintendo game they were playing. And it was one that I was playing at the same time. And I just sort of stepped into the conversation and said, oh yeah, I'm playing that too. And this is, you know, they were stuck on something and I was trying to help. And I remember Dave turned to me and said, you have a Nintendo? And I said, yeah. And we like spent every weekend together from that point on renting games because that was the other big thing to do back then. I know that you're big into Game Pass and everything like that. But of course, like, you know, before Game Pass, you would go rent games on the weekend. And that's what we would do. Like Friday night after school and after supper, we would get one of our parents to drive us to the rental place 
we'd pick a game we hadn't played or a game we were trying to play through, run it for two days, either come to my place, go to his place, sleepovers, play through that game. And that was it. Yeah. I mean, Game Pass is great. Don't get me wrong, but I am not <laughs> that young. I had a Blockbuster membership. Okay. Right. I was there when seven day rentals came out. I was, I was on the nice. front lines for that. So I'm, I, yeah, I'm a, I was a big renter too. Um, another question I had, because when I, I, I was playing games a lot, like mostly in the nineties and there were still arcades in the nineties, but to be honest in the nineties for me, anyway, in my experience arcades, uh, unless you went to like a mega arcade, like Playdium or something like that, uh, the arcades that machines that you would see at like a pizza place or a campground or, or a mall, uh, although sparkles was pretty good. Uh, I'm sure sparkles you know, but great. Yeah. I'm sure you know about that. But, but for the most part in the nineties for me, arcade machines were kind of a little bit like mobile games. They're games that they're fun to play and you can play them when you're not at your console or not at your TV. But I know in the seventies and eighties that arcade machines, like you, like they're part of the reason why people, uh, had lost trust with console games because the, the experiences were just not the same. I feel like back then, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like back then arcade and console games was like the equivalent of watching uh, a DVD at your home versus going to the movie theater. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good comparison, actually. I mean, like I was saying earlier, like some of the older arcade games look pretty damn close on an NES, uh, which was great. You know, like Centipede. I don't know if Centipede's on the NES, but anyway, like Pac-Man and 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 um, Galaga and stuff like that. But Pretty quickly, the arcades, the arcade machines started to outstrip the console, but it was kind of just an accepted thing. And honestly, it's something that um, I think console manufacturers in general were trading on. I know I know Sega did in a big way, sort of mm. traded on the whole like we're closer to the arcade than that one is. Right. I mean, Sega's whole tagline when the, the Genesis and Mega Drive came out was bringing the arcade home. So, yeah, I mean, if you wanted the premium experience, you went to the arcade. Just like just like you just said, like if you want the proper movie experience, you go to a movie theater, mm-hmm. you know, watching it on especially back then on your little CRT at home was not the same thing. No, you know, same thing with video games for sure. Right. OK. Um, and then, yeah, with the NES, they you could say that the gap between like the, the gap between like arcades and consoles starts to get closer. And then you yeah. start to weigh like, oh, do I really want to put my coat and boots on? Do I really want to use all my quarters? <laughs> I need to buy milk at school tomorrow. Like what? But yeah, so I thought that was kind of an interesting kind of uh, trajectory throughout that era. The final question I have uh, in terms of Q1 is you had mentioned um, like obviously you, you got like Mario and Duck Hunt. You said Simon's Quest and Zelda 2. Uh, I was just wondering before we move on if there was any other games that that stood out to you in, from that era as being really important things or games that that uh, provide you with really lasting memories or moments that you, you can recall. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there, there are a ton. Uh, I would say probably top of mind would be um, Mega Man 2. Actually, Mega Man 2 and there's another game called Faxanity, which I'm sure I'm not saying right. Um, but that sort of goes along with the story of when Nintendo Power uh, actually came to Canada, which was a complete surprise. I don't know if it was common knowledge that they were coming or not, but like 12 year old me definitely didn't know. Um, and the whole reason that that sticks out on my mind is because um, I actually had the chicken pox when I was 12 years old, which used to be common, but it isn't anymore. Um, you know, medical. I tried to get them more than once. I wanted to stay yeah. home, play video games, but exactly. Vaccines. I, I remember <laughs> I was home. I was home alone, 12 years old, apparently old enough to stay home alone because uh, my parents worked. And Same my 
yeah, and my dad tossed this package on my bed as he was leaving for work. And I'm assuming that means the mail must have shown up the day before. And I open it up and it's Nintendo Power. And I was like, what's this? And he's like, I don't know. It was addressed to you. And what it was was, again, anyone who had Nintendo Power Flash got the first issue of Nintendo Power that was released in Canada for free. And the cover was Mega Man 2. And I had never even, I had seen the first Mega Man. I mean, nowadays, you know, the cover of the first Mega Man on NES is a joke, right? I mean, it's so god awful looking. But it, un, completely unironically, like, I really had never, my friends and I had never touched Mega Man because of that cover. We never rented it. It looked awful, right? So as funny as it is now, it absolutely worked in the fact that if if the cover was terrible, we didn't look at the game. So anyway, Mega Man 2 was on the cover. And of course, anyone who uh, read Nintendo Power back then, when they covered a game, it was literally a strategy guide. And you would have full maps, full color maps of every level in the game and it ran through, I think maybe the only thing it didn't cover was Dr. Wily's Castle. And it looked amazing. Like the graphics on Mega Man 2 were out of this world. They were so good. And so I was on a I was on a quest to rent Mega Man 2. And it was super popular, probably because of that. So we ended up renting Mega Man because it's like, well, you can't get two. It's never in. Let's rent Mega Man. And we we sort of got into the into the uh, franchise that way. And Faxanadu was another one where it was covered in that issue. It looked really interesting to me. It's you know, side scrolling, sort of almost a Metroid style game, but with uh, with more fantasy trappings like swords and magic and things like that. So I ended up buying that uh, sort of sight unseen based on the maps in that magazine alone. So those two games really stand out because that was also sort of my introduction to video game magazines. At the same time, I hadn't really bought video game magazines, and there weren't really a whole ton of them around in the late 80s. So those two games in particular stand out. But I mean, like Final Fantasy was sort of my intro to RPGs. I was super excited about that. Again, Nintendo Power kind of really amped me up on Final Fantasy, and I had played Dragon Warrior with my friend Dave. Um, Anything from Capcom, really, besides Mega Man, like uh, DuckTales was huge for me. Um, And also... Yeah, and also Batman by Sunsoft also stands out for me because, um, you know, Tim Burton's Batman came out in 89, I think, which is kind of out of this quarter, but still part of the same thing. Yeah, and it's like, well, I'll play I'll I'll play anything that has Batman in it now because that movie was so cool and so, so popular. <laughs> the anti anti E.T. game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Perfect. Well, that wraps up quarter number one, and we're going to slide into quarter number two, which will cover 1988 to 1999. But before we do, let's put another coin into that arcade time machine and take a quick look into that era of gaming. You're the first serious gamer I've seen all morning. Check this out. Brand new 16-bit Super Nintendo with Super Mario World. Wow! What's this one? Oh, this is a Sonic the Hedgehog from Sega Genesis. Hey, look at these radical colors, huh? Wow, Sonic's fast, too. No, over here. I like Genesis, and it costs a lot less. Wait, kid, that game I'll take Sonic and Genesis. (laughs) Genesis does. 16-bit arcade graphics. You can't do this on Nintendo Genesis. 16-bit sports action. Did you ever try to get to level 10 in your underwear, boy? 
across endless land and water, you search. Deep into a parallel world, where light becomes dark, you search. And just when you think your search has ended, you find it's just begun. The new Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past. Now you're playing with power, superpower. Super Mario All-Star, so much Mario as a Mario smorgasbord. It's all the way down Mario Brothers Adventures he ever played and then some. But this is Juice Star 16-bit, only on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System Mario. So it's bigger Mario, better Mario, in your face Mario. It's Raccoon Mario, Mario throwing fireballs, Mario hurling turnips, Mario negotiating an arms deal. Okay, maybe not. It's Mario like you've never seen him. What's two plus two Mario? What's the capital of Ohio Mario? You're gonna live, breathe, eat, sleep Mario. In Super Mario All-Stars, four Mario games, including the never-before-seen lost level, so you can't get more Mario than this, which is why the best play here. Nineteen eighty-eight to nineteen ninety-nine. It can't be all fun and games forever as two Japanese corporations battle it out in one of the first big public console wars. It was hedgehogs versus Goombas, blood versus sweat, cool kids versus little kids, Sega versus Nintendo. Tell me, Greg, in this area era of your gaming life, what devices did you game on? What was your favorite? And do you remember how you got them? I gamed on everything in the nineties. The 90s is like by far my favorite time in video games. Um, but yeah, I, I was I was definitely a Genesis kid. Um, I wasn't I was a Nintendo kid, as we just talked about, and I was super excited about the Super Nintendo, uh, you know, watching at this point all the different magazines and all the information and all the news on it and trying to figure out when it was coming out. And it wasn't back then. It wasn't like it is now where you had like this. First of all, you didn't get things sort of the same time world over. That didn't happen. You know, something would come out in Japan and then like the next year it would come out here. It happened with the Genesis. It happened with the Super Nintendo. Um, happened with the Turbo Graphics, And I kind of got sick of waiting for the Super Nintendo. And there was a couple of reasons for it. And one of them was that um, I finally started to be able to rent a Genesis. Uh, you know, uh, back when you would rent consoles, I talked my dad into putting the $200 deposit on his credit card so that I could rent a Genesis for a weekend um, and rented like Super Monaco GP, which was amazing. There was nothing that looked like that on the NES and Sonic was on its way. You you played that commercial in that intro with the whole like, I want Sonic. That was absolutely me. Sonic looks so cool. And, and Sega did such an amazing job of marketing that game. And of really making it look good next to Super Mario World, which is an amazing game. Don't get me wrong, but, you know, really made it look good next to Super Mario World. And <clears throat> the other big thing for me was that around the same time that the Super Nintendo was coming here, um, the Sega CD or the Mega CD was being released in Japan. And I was sort of all in on CD gaming for some reason. It was just something that I decided I really wanted and so I think it was, again, had to do with um, checking out the TurboGrafx CD a little bit and thinking like it's so cool, Redbook Audio and having real voice actors and things like that. Um, 
and Sega had made it very clear the Sega CD was coming in 1992, whereas Nintendo was waffling. Nintendo announced one, and they partnered with Sony, and it was going to be the PlayStation, and they pulled the rug out from underneath Sony, and they partnered with Philips, and then they pulled the rug out from underneath Philips and decided, no, we don't need CD. And it was like all that sort of came together to be like, I'm just going to go with the Genesis. I'm sick of waiting. The games I tried, I really liked. I ended up selling everything to buy a Genesis, sold my Game Boy, sold my NES, sold all my games, and uh, bought a Genesis <laughs> after they took Alter Beast out of the box and before they put Sonic in the box. So I literally got nothing with my system. I had no games to play Oof. when I bought my Genesis. I bought a copy of Alter Beast for three bucks. Oh, that's not through, bad. Through like one of those shady mail order things in the back of uh, like EGM or something like that, like chips and bits or something. Um, and that lasted 20 minutes. It got here. I played it, finished it in 20 minutes and never touched it again. But I love, yeah, I was a big Genesis kid for the first part of the nineties. That was, that was what I played. Um, my buddy Dave got a super Nintendo, uh, and that's where I experienced those games, which is great between us. We sort of played everything. We, we shared our systems and played all the major games and I ended up buying a super Nintendo eventually, but I was full on into the Sega ecosystem for the first part of the 90s genesis sega cd 32x that was what i did from like 90 to 95 so by the end of it you had a mutant console with like attachments on every surface tower of power nice three three wall warts yeah that's awesome and that's all kind of one thing that i wanted to talk on you or speak on you mentioned your friend had a um an in- super nintendo as well which you like for you and if it was for me too in that era that was like the ideal scenario right i i had mm. a I had a, a Super Nintendo. My friend had a, a Sega, and that was awesome because then we could uh, like lend consoles to each other, and I could I could play both things because there was no way I was going to be able to have both of them at that time. Uh, and that is kind of counter to what the marketing was, but everyone that I know at least was the same. I don't. Did you ever encounter like any kind of uh, console warrior type mentality between people, or was for the most part? Was it because you were it would have been in a different kind of age bracket as well in that in that area? Um, did you ever see a lot of people like really heated and arguing about like what's better and what's what's not? Or was it more like, I hope my friend gets the other one because then I get to play more things? Yeah, it was kind of more like that. And I mean, the big thing and one of the reasons why I love the early 90s in general in the Super Nintendo and Genesis is that um even when you had the same game on different consoles they weren't necessarily the same game you know what right. i mean like some of them were but they had different uh pluses and minuses like earthworm jim let's say was was the same game technically but had i think more levels or something on the genesis and and better music on the super nintendo or teenage mutant ninja turtles right two games that are kind of the same uh turtles in time and hyperstone heist turtles in time definitely i think the better game but hyperstone heist plays exactly the same but has completely different levels and completely different um progression and everything like that so kind of worth playing both of them um or even then along the lines of like shadow run or um alien 3 where same license completely different game on both consoles so you know i was a teenager during that era and my friends there was never any sort of angry aggressive console warrior stuff that I saw or was a part of. It was more of a one-upsmanship or like uh, teasing each other. Like, ew, you play NHL on the Super Nintendo? That sucks. Like, NHL is so much better on the Genesis. You know what I mean? Like, it was always that sort of thing. Um, you know, and and of course, 
my buddies who were into like RPGs, we were all kind of into role playing games at the time. And you kind of you needed a Super Nintendo to play the best role playing games. That was where Square was. And that was where mm-hmm. you're getting Final Fantasy and Chrono Trigger and all that stuff. Um, but now, for the most part, there wasn't any real system warrior stuff going. If anything, it was kind of the uh, the alternative that you said, where it's like, you know, I know I'm going to get to play Final Fantasy three because my friend Dave has a Super Nintendo and my buddy Justin would come down to my place to play NHL because it came out first on the Genesis. And that was actually the reason he ended up buying a Genesis because he loved that game so much. Like, so we sort of got to broaden our horizons and um, open a lot of doors for each other gaming wise because we as a group of friend had access to every console. Yeah, it's really interesting because like I mostly consume these ads through like watching them 20, 10, 20 years later or whatever through YouTube videos. But the advertising uh, between Sony or, or Sega, sorry, mostly Sega, I would say, I don't really see a lot of Nintendo uh, ads that are super combative, although they do have a little bit, but the advertising and and what they're putting out there for people to kind of uh, consume is very aggressive in terms of like pitting themselves against each other. But then the actual gamers that are playing these games and buying these consoles aren't necessarily doing that. Whereas now, uh, aside from like, this is how you play used games or whatever with PlayStation, <laughs> other other than that, the, the advertising is like pretty good. And and like the, the presence of some of the leadership in, in those companies online are usually pretty cordial. And like that stuff is very friendly for the most part. But the the gamers are <laughs> like online. They're like yeah. extremely aggressive. And console war is like a plague kind of on the industry at this point. So it's just an interesting dichotomy where uh, the marketing has softened a lot, but the actual outcome is completely different. It was it was one of those one of the things that I really loved about Sega. And um, if you read the book Console Wars or listen to anything that Tom Kalinsky said, who was running Sega after 1990. Um, like he, he he sort of calls out things like, you know, um, Pepsi versus Coke and how they would constantly reference each other in their advertising, not necessarily in a in a, an aggressive way. But, you know, you'd always have that reference. And I think he cites a I don't know the exact commercial, but I think it was a Nike commercial that he saw uh, during a motel stay one night. He, he says was the inspiration for the whole like, um, you know, let's really go after Nintendo in a big way. I mean, Genesis does what Nintendo wasn't his. That happened before he got there. But it was kind of fun to be on the side of that sort of console war um, where you had a company like Sega that had enough money to throw around to be successful at the time, but really had nothing to lose in this market because they had something like 5% of the game market when the Genesis came out. Like, it was ridiculous, right? Um, So... It's like, well, if we if we go for broke and it doesn't work, we're really no worse off than we were. So right. let's just do it. And I, I mean, some of their their advertising pushed the envelope a little bit, but I think for the most part, um, it was respectful enough. I yeah, guess enough. Some of yeah. it was bad, but um, you know, and and it was interesting that you saw Sony sort of follow suit uh, later on with their with their amazing Crash Bandicoot uh, ads ever. Hey there, plumber boy. Just the best, right? Standing outside Nintendo headquarters with a bullhorn. Beautiful. Like it was, it was so great. So yeah, it was, it was a really fun time, I think in video games. And I think because the systems were so different from each other, even though they were both technically just 16 bit cartridge systems. um, Yeah. It it was just a really fun time to be, to be part of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Another thing that happened in this era that was pretty uh, that that still affects us today is uh, a little game called Mortal Kombat came out and really 
upset a lot of people that don't like video games or don't play video games and the ESRB formed. I'm wondering, since you were a teenager in this era um, and you are a Genesis kid, which which was the console that had all the blood, not the sweat. Um, I wonder, I'm wondering if the ESRB kind of affected you in any way or anyone you know in terms of uh, the ability for you to walk into a store and buy a game or for your parents to, uh, did your parent, I know some of my friends, like my best friend, uh, his parents, uh, almost made him return gears of war, uh, when they <laughs> saw what that game actually was like when I was a teenager. So I'm just curious if that had any impact that you could have, that you felt when that came out, or was that more of a kind of just for, for like show to get pe- the parents off their backs? I think it was absolutely for show. I mean, it's, you know, nowadays the the rating system is um, used and and paid more attention to, I think, in general. And I think that really started in the sort of the turn of the century. God, I can't believe I said it that way. The early 2000s. Um, I mean, the rating system was a thing. You got to remember, too, that before there was the ESRB, Sega had its own rating system. They actually started rating games voluntarily um, on the Genesis. And I think Mortal Kombat was one of the first ones. But um, yeah, it didn't really affect us. Plus, I was in my like mid to late teens at that point, so I didn't really mm-hmm. know anybody. And I was working in re- game rental stores at that point as well. And we were never given a directive to be like, you know, you can't rent an M-rated game to a kid. But I mean, there weren't that many of them either. It's not like it is today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you back then you had like Doom was starting to hit consoles, and if you were on like the 32x, it looked like Doom, whereas. Nintendo's big thing was always changing the blood to a different color and somehow that wasn't gory or, or violent. Um, and it's, you know, it seemed to serve them well or things like uh, Lethal Enforcers, which is also another one of those games that was part of the congressional hearings that sort of resulted in the ESRB. And, you know, like, I think the only real difference was on the Super Nintendo when you shot somebody and it was all digital digitized graphics. So they were pictures of real people. Mm-hmm. I think they didn't even react. I think they just blinked off the screen. Whereas on like the Genesis, they would, they would like real, real back for a frame. And I think maybe the shot would be blood red or something like that. So, you know, it was, it was pretty tame. It was really tame compared to today. Even Mortal Kombat, when you look at it, was pretty tame compared to what you would see in an M rated game nowadays. Right. I mean, it was, it was gory, but it was so cartoonishly gory yeah. that, you know, it, it, I do remember, I, I do remember a lot of the news coverage around it. And I actually ended up being one of, uh, a kid that was on, um, if anyone remembers, Canadians might remember the show called Street Sense. Um, yeah, I think they, I've seen that. They used to record that in Halifax and um, they had a bunch of kids on to talk about violent video games. So I was actually on CBC talking about Mortal Kombat, but I was like 17 at the time, so it didn't really affect me so much. And we'll my parents that up. attention at that they point. They got that VOD somewhere. I'd love to. You can't find Street Sense online anywhere. We'll, we'll ask Justin. Yeah. He'll find it somewhere. There you go. Yeah. He's probably on it too. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's interesting because like I like you had mentioned Lethal Enforcers. I, re- I watched like, uh, not the whole thing because it's probably pretty boring, but I've seen clips of the court hearing and he actually had like the pink Mm-hmm. Gun, he cut it off like he ruined he ruined a cabinet to get that, and uh, I thought that was pretty funny. But I also thought it was kind of funny how they chose those games. Cause sure, like I guess like yeah, there's like you could rip someone's spine out in Mortal Kombat, but I mean that's pretty cartoony. And Lethal Enforcers, yeah, it is digitized humans you're shooting, but it, again, doesn't look very realistic. Whereas before Nintendo and Sega, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. Nintendo, um, 
and Sega both licensed, uh, or maybe not licensed might not be the right word, but they kind of like oversaw like what was being released for their consoles. Uh, whereas Atari didn't as much. And you could like literally go into a video rental store, go in the, the room with the beads on it, uh, the adult room and rent like porn video games for Atari. Yeah. Which is like, I think it's real a lot worse than Mortal Kombat, but no one, no one cared about that for some reason. It's just when they started making money and being popular, then I think one of the things too, to remember, which is really important. And I know we're going back to the previous quarter here, but the earliest video game systems weren't necessarily marketed as toys. You know, like, and you, and you look at like, if you read about the history of like Pong and everything, like one of the reasons that Pong was so popular, it it said is because like you could be out on a date and the two of you could play it. And you know what I mean? So arcades weren't necessarily just for kids and video games weren't necessarily just for kids. Um, They were more marketed towards older people, adults and, and teenagers and that sort of thing. And, you know, like arcades were sort of dens of teenagers for the longest time in the 80s as well. They weren't really very kid friendly anyway. You know, that's where you want it. You go to play like a game of centipede and buy some pot like that was where you went was an arcade. But like that was one of the things that Nintendo did to bring back video games was to start marketing this thing, not as a video game console, but as a toy because retailers didn't want anything to do with video games when, when Nintendo came back. So it was all about marketing as a toy and, and sort of following and, and setting up your, your sales and distribution like you would for a toy, not a video game system, really? not electronics. So, I mean, they were kind of uh, Nintendo and Sega when it came to that and, and the, the revived video game market as a whole, I think we're kind of victims of their own success there where they realized, you know, once Nintendo did it right and everybody hopped on and they were making games for this thing. And then Sega came in and did the same thing. I mean, Sega definitely marketed to an older group, but they were still aiming at teenagers and tweens or old, you know, like nine mm-hmm. and 10 year olds who wanted to be teenagers who, who or wanted edgy. to, yeah, who wanted to like the same thing their big brother liked, you know what I mean? So, I think that's what led to it. Whereas porn games, I'm sure there was a lot of pearl clutching when, when those games came out on the Atari, if you even knew that they came out on the Atari. Right. But it wouldn't, it wasn't the same thing as if something like that had been released on a Genesis or a super Nintendo uh, in the mainstream in like the early nineties, I think it would have been a much bigger fervor. Plus I think you also have to remember that this is in the same era where they were putting um, parental advisory stickers on, rap albums and stuff like that too i mean you know video games didn't didn't live in a vacuum it was sort of everybody was pushing the envelope a little bit in a lot of the different arts and media and a lot of parents groups were pushing back at that point in like a national way like the the whole parental advisory thing was wasn't that like tipper gore i think was sort of the head of that group and al gore was the was the vice president i think at the time or was about to be the vice president at the time so that was all happening in the 90s as well. It was it was definitely a different time. And you were also like if you go back and look at porn games like Custer's Revenge on the 2600. That's the one I'm aware of. Yeah, yeah it's 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 laughable. It, it The content isn't, but the graphics are. I mean, it doesn't look real. No. Right. Not. Whereas you look at Night Trap. Looks better which, than E.T., though. It does look better than E.T. <laughs> um, but you look at like Night Trap and you're talking about real actors and actresses, you know. So, or, or Mortal Kombat for as cartoonishly gory as it was, I mean, those were digitized characters. 
So I, I see why it became more of a thing in the in the nineties, but it was still it was it was overblown, but I don't think it was either. I think that, you know, it had to happen. The industry yeah. wanted to grow up and part of growing up meant they needed to police themselves a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you know, the ESRB made sense. Yeah. I mean, I think the ESRB serves a, a really good purpose, especially for uh, parents that are buying games for kids and they not don't necessarily know uh, mm-hmm. like what's going on. But it's interesting that you like taking it back a couple steps. Um, I wasn't actually I never really looked at through that lens where you had mentioned that video games originally were um, marketed towards like teenagers or adults, like more as electronics versus toys. Um, and that's part of what what may have led to uh the the crash so to speak and that that nintendo marketed as a toy and whatnot because i always thought that they were marketed as toys and one of the things that happened um later on like mostly in the late 90s and onwards is they started to market games more so to adults like games like metal gear solid uh mm-hmm. games like doom or like final fantasy even became more mature with seven versus some of the other ones stuff like that so it sounds like it was kind of like both are true yeah and i think honestly the esrb played a big part of that in the 90s you know not that metal gear solid and things like that wouldn't exist but i think it opened the door and made it safer to release games that were a little bit more ad- adult aiming and i'm not just talking about porn you know, although that was a thing too, but it's just like, you know, we can, we can push the envelope a little bit more because we've almost, we're self-policing and we've got a, this sort of shield around us now where it's like, if somebody makes a big deal out of it, you can point at it and say, well, it's got an M on it. You know, it says right there on the package that you should be 17 or older to play this. Whereas if that didn't exist, you know, you still had this sort of kid-friendly Nintendo. So if it just had a Nintendo logo on it, there was an assumption it was for a kid, mm-hmm. you know, or even a Sega logo, you know. So I think it totally opened the door and allowed things for, you know, especially on the console side. PC, not so much because PCs were always marketed towards adults. But for the consoles, it's like, you know, Doom can exist now and Mortal Kombat can exist now and Metal Gear Solid can exist in that form now. You know, th- we, we can do this stuff now because we're 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 all grown up. Mm-hmm. And one question that I, I like taking back right to the beginning of this quarter that I forgot to bring up is you had said that pretty much right at the onset, you were like team CD. Cause I know that that was kind of a, like a, a point of contention with some people. My experience with it was CD was kind of, I, I wasn't a huge fan of it until the PlayStation. And even when it came out on PlayStation, there were some significant advantages to cartridges, specifically like mm-hmm. loading times. Um, so I'm wondering, like, was there anything specific, like maybe a specific game or a, spe- a specific experience uh, that made you like want to be an early adopter of, of disc based media? You're going to laugh at me. <clears throat> um, I was really excited about full motion video games. <laughs> <laughs> I just it, that's that felt like the future to me. And I didn't think that that was going to de- necessarily take over what video games were, but it felt so cutting edge and um like I, I mean, we've really only talked about the first half of the '90s here so far, but that's one of the things about the '90s that I, I really love is that multimedia started to sort of merge with video games, and the best part about that was that nobody knew what to do with that for the first little while, um, and it it and you ended up with having these really sort of diverse, interesting, off the wall, and a lot of times terrible 
uh, different video games um, based on, you know, like, well, what do we do with CD? Redbook Audio. Redbook Audio was great. Redbook Audio coming to video games was a huge thing, right? Like um, everything, well, not everything, but everything could sound so much better. So that was one of the things that I loved. Um, uh, like sort of animate, not necessarily full motion video, but just sort of animated cutscenes and having so much space. I mean, if you go back and you look at a lot of old NES games, like I mentioned as well, like Genesis, Altered Beast. Alter Beast took me 20 minutes to play through the first time. And if you look at a lot of cartridge games, a lot of action games from that era, they're not very long Mm -hmm. because memory space was still an issue, right? Memory was still expensive. And in the late 90s, in the late 80s, early 90s, I remember there was like this huge shortage for uh, for chips and things like that in the Nintendo cartridges, which was why things like Super Mario Brothers 3 were so hard to get for a while whereas like cds you had these little discs they didn't cost anything to make and you didn't have to deal with things like chip shortages and and cost of memory that you had a ton of memory so there was that but then it also opened the door for things like full motion video and you know there full motion video wasn't a new thing in the 90s i mean in the early 80s we were playing dragon's lair in the arcades so suddenly that could come home that sort of thing could come home for better or worse Right. I thought it was really interesting. I thought there was something there. I was full on on board with Sewer Shark and Night Trap and <laughs> and, you know, Road Avenger and stuff. Some of those are still my favorite games, mostly for the nostalgia. But, um, you know, it, it, yeah, it was it was really fun to watch. And then as the era, as the decade moved on, you had like Pioneer deciding to bring out a Laserdisc based game console and you had Trip Hawkins leaving electronic arts to create 3do and that was sort of the going again and saying hey the, the this crowd that were kids when we started bringing video games back are now getting older they've got more disposable income they're high tech you know they want they want something more high tech to go in with their stereo systems and their you know not hd tvs but big you know big screen mm-hmm. televisions and uh so let's do 3do and phillips with cdi and Atari with Jaguar like it just you know you look at the middle of the 90s and there's a ridiculous number of consoles out there and they're all trying to do something different most of them failed but it was sort of a really exciting time to see what people were going to do so that's why I was on board with it it was like it felt like the next step and uh, I I threw my weight behind Sega because while the TurboGrafx CD was out there um, the TurboGrafx 16 came out and failed pretty quickly in North America so you know, I was like, it's going to be either Sega or Nintendo. Sega went with it. So I went with Sega and, and yeah, went with that and, and ended up buying my system from Florida and it didn't even work when I got it. <laughs> oh, really? Was it like a region thing or just, just bad luck? No, it was bad luck. So one of the things that uh, came out or that I learned is like um, being in Canada, sometimes bigger items didn't ship here. You had to wait a long time for them. And I really, really, really wanted a Sega CD. I'd saved my money and I wanted one as soon as it came out. And my aunt happened to be traveling to Florida. So I gave her my money and said, like, can you buy me a Sega CD and send it back? Yep, no problem. She shipped it back and it got here. I plugged it all in. I turned it on and nothing happened. And if you look at Sega CD boxes from the original run, you'll see little arrows that say this side up. Apparently, turning those things over was not good for them. So if it got turned over in shipping, it might not work. <laughs> I don't know what it. Ha- I don't know why, <laughs> but 
but that was a thing. So I ended up having to go to a local game shop and I, it was a, the place that I was renting a lot of my Genesis games from. And I knew they were selling Sega CDs and they happened to have some at the time. And I walked in and said like, I didn't buy this here. Is there anything I can do with this? And, uh, the guy behind the counter, um, who was actually, we've been friends ever since he couldn't do anything about it, but the owner happened to walk in at the exact same time and ask what was going on. And he's just like, well, Greg here has this, he got it shipped from Florida. It doesn't work. You know, he's trying to see what he can do about it. And the owner saw that there was a stack of them behind the counter and he just pointed and said, just give him one of ours. And, really? Uh, yeah. So it's pretty cool. And yeah, uh, then I came home and played my Sega CD. So it's too, too bad. Yelp wasn't around back then. Could have gave him yeah, a no five star review. Right. Yeah, I, I know that uh, cartridges was kind of part of the business model too. With I, I know for sure with Nintendo, I'm assuming it was probably the same with Sega, where they um, they manufactured the carts, right? And then mm-hmm. the, the the publishers of the video games had to purchase them from Nintendo. So there was profit to be made by selling the carts, which is why Nintendo was so reluctant to flip two discs because they they didn't have the license. Uh, for discs, in the in the sense that they were not uh, charging people to to make discs ex- exactly, right? And that that might be I could be wrong, but that might be why the GameCube discs were like special discs or, or whatnot. I'm not. I'm guessing so. Sure. Yeah. yeah, but it costs them dearly because uh, and leading into what you're talking about about games being short and and you wanted bigger experience and stuff like that. Uh, game makers also wanted to make bigger games and have these huge experiences and tell these long uh, stories and be able to flush out these characters. Uh, and so the long, the long-term partner of Nintendo, the, the, the thing that you had alluded to earlier as being kind of the, the, the publisher of games that was kind of out of reach for Sega fans that you're happy that your friend had Nintendo for square or square Enix or Enix mm-hmm. or both. I don't know if they were combined at this point, but they, no, they left, weren't. they left Nintendo because they wanted to make games like final fantasy seven, where they could put these really cool characters, really nice graphics and fit it all into, and I think it still was like two discs. Maybe I can't remember, but I think they, it was three, three. Yeah. yeah. But they could do that because, uh, because of discs. So, we spent a lot of time, like you said, talking about uh, the first half of the 90s. Getting into the second half of the 90s, is this is when I became a mega fan of video games. And there's some really amazing titles that have come out there. So I'm wondering, um, did you get a, a PlayStation at launch? or I got a Saturn. And, and do you regret that at all? <laughs> no. Saturn is one of my favorite consoles of all really? time. Oh, my God. I love the Saturn. So... Uh, a little bit of context there. I mean, again, I was a Sega guy. I loved the Saturn. I love Sega's arcade games. I've become a huge fan. Um, the fact that Daytona was coming out, Daytona looked terrible, but the fact that it was coming out on the Saturn, uh, Virtual Fighter on the Saturn, that was a big deal to me. Plus, I just, you know, I loved a lot of their franchises. I was assuming there would be a new Sonic on the Saturn, which never really happened. I was assuming there would be a new Eternal Champions on the Saturn, which never really happened. Or a new Streets of Rage, which never happened. So, like, you know, there's oops. no Sonic on the Sega Saturn. Nope, there was no Sonic. Pretty famously, there was one in development that never came out called Sonic Extreme. It was just so bad that they never, never finished it. Wow. Um, but anyway, yeah, I went full on on the Saturn. Um, so I didn't buy a PlayStation right away. I did eventually buy one. Um, when I when Formula One came out, actually. The game Formula One from Psygnosis is the reason I bought a PlayStation. <laughs> Super glad that I did, though, because the PlayStation ended up being a great console. But see, back then, you have to remember, too, Sony, if you were a video game fan before now, they didn't have a great reputation in video games. Like they were they released games under the Sony ImageSoft 
name. Their it, games usually sucked. I don't know about this. What? So what? What? I only know Sony in terms of video games as they made the audio uh, chip for Super mm-hmm. Nintendo, and they got totally screwed by Nintendo, and then they made PlayStation. The rest is history. That's all I know. I did. I know they published games before. Yeah, PlayStation. Okay. Yep. You look them Explain. up. in Sony ImageSoft. So they released a lot of terrible sports games. Um, they released a fair amount of middling to good movie, like the 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 game Hook based on the movie Hook. Was for okay. Yep. That was Sony. That, that was Sony? Mm-hmm. I had that game. Um actually <laughs> really uh, hard. Um what's what's his name? Oh god. Um who created Twisted Metal and God of War. David Jaffe. David Jaffe. His first job, I think, her first game job was Sony Imagesoft. Um cool. he released they released a, a Disney game called Mickey Mania, which was actually one of the best games they released. Is that the, is that the one where it starts out in black and white? Yep. That's the one. Oh my god! I that game was awesome, right? And yep. I I got it from uh like for some reason like Easter or Christmas or some present I got it. Anyways, my like a kid in my neighborhood stole it. <laughs> I, I I beat the black and white part, and then I went out to play, and then we came inside to to play or whatever, and he, yep. and he stole it, and I never got to play it again, and I could never find it anywhere. Like they never like re released it or oh really? Because <laughs> I had a Super Nintendo like late and and i actually got a ps1 like between when i got a super nintendo and then got a ps1 that was like the fastest i ever like was able to upgrade to another console just because of how it worked out with when i got it and whatnot so i always remember thinking that black and white level was awesome and i never got to finish that game and it's burnt into my mind and i have never been able to find it or another way to play it the premise of that game was great it was so brilliant and it made so much sense it's like hey let's just pick a bunch of classic mickey mouse shorts and build levels out of them but yeah that was david jaffe you probably have a copy of it from guessing. oh god yeah well, i have the yeah. <laughs> superior i have the superior sega cd version oh really okay little system wars there for you but um yeah so you know sega was proven n64 was off in the distance and sony was sony and sony did not have a great reputation when it came to video games um so I made my choice for the Saturn and I don't regret it. And one of the things that I've really loved in, in recent years is the Saturn did so badly. It did so poorly, especially here. And um, a lot of people didn't experience the library. But in recent years, it feels like people are starting to discover these games that I loved in the late 90s. So it's so much fun to see people either play those games for the first time or like I stream three nights a week. And if I stream a Saturn game that I loved, like uh, last year I was streaming this game called dragon force from working designs, which is this, this great sort of strategy RPG. And everybody who was watching my stream was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Like, this is a great game. I didn't even know this existed, you know? So it's like seeing people react to that stuff. The Saturn had a wonderful library and all, and it was weird. All of my friends had Saturns. Really? So we were all about it. You know, if you liked, especially if you liked arcade, like if you liked Sega fighting games and Sega was making some amazing 3D fighting games in the 90s, like Last Bronx and Fighters Mega Mix and Virtual Fighter and like uh, Fighters, um, I already said Fighters, Fighting Vipers is the other one. Like the arcade ports of those on the Saturn were fantastic. Sega made great games on the Saturn. Everyone else struggled to make good games on the Saturn because of the, the architecture, right? Um, so yeah, the late nineties, a lot of the late nineties for me was, was spent as a, a Saturn lover 
who unfortunately um, saw the whole world playing PlayStation instead. And I did eventually end up buying a PlayStation because of that. Um, you couldn't not. I mean, that yeah. was the system down in the late the late 90s. Y- you had to. If you wanted to play the best games, you had to have a PlayStation. That's that's really interesting. First of all, I've never played. I literally have never played a Saturn. I'm not even con- like 100% confident that I've seen one in real life. But I can relate to that so much because that to me like sounds like exactly well, maybe not exactly a little, a little role reversal there, but it's very, it has a lot of uh, parallels with me uh, flipping to get like getting an Xbox uh, and all of my friends getting an Xbox, but the whole world getting a PS2 mm-hmm. and finding these gems. Cause I can name a bunch of Xbox games that, I mean, you definitely would have heard of them, but most people wouldn't like, I thought Tao Fang Fist of Lotus was amazing. It's one of my favorite fighting games. The, 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 the actual damage that you can see on your characters is, is awesome. Stuff like blood wake stuff like, um, obscure which might have been a multi-platform game i'm not sure but uh, remember that, that one well it's pretty pretty obscure <laughs> huh uh run like hell i think that was actually multi-platform too that one. um but yeah there's breakdown was one of still one of the best games ever um but like no, most people don't know those because they just weren't popular and there's all these like hidden gems it was like the hidden gem console of that era i think and mm-hmm. it sounds like saturn might be feeling that role Absolutely. Uh, for for that gen so i know how you feel and i definitely respect that decision yeah. Was there uh, any games in particular that, that you could uh, say was like the best game on Saturn or, or like your favorite Oh my favorite gosh. Game? I tried to do this today, actually, and my list is so long. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there were a few things that stood out. Like the Panzer Dragoon series was amazing on Did the that Saturn. that start on Saturn? Yep. Panzer Dragoon okay. was a launch game on the Saturn in, in North America. Panzer uh, Dragoon Ortas, another hidden gem on Xbox. There you go. Yeah. Um, there was a series of first-person shooters that were fantastic on the Saturn done by a company called Lobotomy um, that I think was bought pretty quickly after that and was, I think, stuck making like casino games after a while. But they released a game called Power Slave, which is actually getting a re-release very soon. Um, that was a It was a great first-person shooter, and it was really, really, really well done on the Saturn. And Sega ended up um, lic- or, um, contracting them to do quake and duke nukem on the saturn which were both fantastic ports of those games for a system that wasn't supposed to be able to do 3d very well they're they're amazing um any sega stuff like sega rally is one of my favorite all-time games on the saturn and on just in general in video games uh virtual fighter 2 is still incredible fighters megamix is still incredible um you had uh working designs releasing um Dragon Force was a huge thing. I, I could go on and on about Saturn. I mean, it, it had great shooters, had great 2D fighters. Like that was the only system to play if you play if you wanted to play like Night Warriors or Street Fighter or X-Men, you know, like they were always better on the Saturn. Did it it didn't have an analog uh stick on the controller, right? It did eventually. It did? Uh when okay. the game Knights came out, only with them it was it was kind of like a disc. Uh it wasn't really a it was a stick, but it wasn't. But okay. yeah, it was. It was released for the game nights. I need to. I need to watch some Saturn documentaries. I'm. That's. Mm-hmm. Th- that's like a black spot in my in my video game. See, that's life. what I'm talking about. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And then people pick it up and like, wow, there's some really good stuff here. It's not all great, but the good stuff is really good. Yeah. 
Um, so before we wrap this quarter, you did mention that you got a PlayStation. That's a pretty significant console for me, pretty significant console for a lot of people. I'm wondering if you have any fond memories of that, uh, any, any things that stand out, any games that stand out? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the PlayStation, like I said, I was a late, uh, late comer to that, but uh, like a few of the things that really stand out, um, and I've listened to your other episodes, so you're going to love when I say this, but, uh, Metal Gear Solid is like right at the top of the list. That game was incredible. The, the most cinematic thing ever. And I was I was a fan of the original. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that the port to the NES, um, which was not the same as the original MSX game. But I was a big fan of of Metal Gear Solid or Metal Gear. So when Metal Gear Solid came out, I was I was all over. I imported the special edition and everything I was really into it. Um, Castlevania Symphony of the Night. I was a huge Super Metroid fan on the Super Nintendo. So Symphony of the Night is one of my all time favorite games as well. Um, and Gran Turismo is another one for me, uh, being a big racing game fan. And you mentioned analog stick on the Saturn when that came out along with the analog controller for the PlayStation, it changed, changed racing games on, uh, consoles. I mean, you know, it's people cringe when you call it a simulator because compared to like the best PC simulators, it doesn't really hold up, but when you consider what they were trying to do with Gran Turismo and how it was a bunch of real cars that all felt different, whether they felt realistic is up for debate. Um, and then you combined it with the dual analog stick that Sony brought out. This was before the DualShock. Uh, it just played like nothing else. And I have super uh, fond memories of that too because uh, the 90s was also the first time I ever went to E3. And um, I remember driving down to Atlanta for E397, which was the year that um, Gran Turismo was being released here. I believe it was 97. And Sony was running a contest for um, setting a fast lap at Trial Mountain. And whoever set the fastest lap at the show would win a, would win a trip for two to see a, a, a sports car race at Laguna Seca in California. And I ended up winning that. Really? So, yeah. Which um, in the next quarter is actually the basis for a good story. I hope I remember to tell it when we get there. But I won't, I won't forget. But yeah, I absolutely. And the whole the only reason was is because I was in. Uh, I was really, really active online at that point and on a chat program called IRC, um, where I was chatting with a bunch of um, magazine editors, mostly from Ziff Davis. That's where I met a lot of those people. And uh, there was a guy on there named Marty Chin who would sell imports and he had sort of hipped us all to uh, Gran Turismo coming out. And I was so enamored by it that I imported the Japanese version along with the controller. So by the time I got to E3 that year, I was a master at the game. That's so, so greasy. So you I, cheated. Yeah, I, I absolutely <laughs> did. Kind of. So, Whatever. you know, um, wins the win. Yeah, exactly. So, but yeah. And, and the other thing about, I think, PlayStation that stands out for me that I think a lot of people don't don't really consider is that it was the home to some great non-square RPGs as well. Konami in particular was releasing some really good RPGs on that system early on, and so was Sony, like Wild Arms and Suikoden and Vandal Hearts and things like that. So they they definitely stand out as well. Now you said you had went to E3, and we'll probably talk more about this in the next quarter. But was that as a fan, or was that part of uh, mm. work? That was as part of not work, um, but as part of a website that I had started, which was sort of the beginning of my my career in games journalism. Um, 
through IRC and things like that, I had I had hooked up with some like-minded folks who, again, some of them were already magazine editors, but uh, there was one in particular named uh, Sam Kennedy, which is a name that some people will know, um, who had a website called Gaming Enthusiast Online. And I, I joined up there and he was having trouble with his publisher at the time. So a group of us broke off and decided to form a, a, a website called Gaming Age, um, which is where Neil Gaff came from. It, ultimately. But um, that was what I was there for. Uh, we were, we would go down to E3 on our own dime uh, on press passes from Gaming Age and um, cover the cover the show. It was great. I loved it. It was a great time. Cool. Yeah, that's been a dream of mine to always go to E3, although it's not quite the same anymore, especially <laughs> since uh, a little, little pandemic happened. But uh, yeah, yeah maybe, maybe one day I'll get there. Maybe I'll win a, a trip somewhere. But that will bring us to the end of quarter two. Moving right along to quarter number three, we're going to be looking at the year 2000, the millennium to 2009. But before we do, let's put a coin into the arcade time machine and take a look at what gaming was like in that era. one of the most eagerly awaited video games finally goes on sale. Preparing to rewrite retail history. Video game is expected to have bigger first day revenues than any movie has ever had an opening day at the box. The latest video war, video game war is heating up tonight. Nintendo's GameCube system is about to hit the stores. Far from the Mushroom Kingdom. Among a people enchanted by sunshine. Mario has taken a break from the hopping, the bopping, and saving the princess. All to fulfill his destiny, which is, above all else, to save me. The Legend of Zelda, The Wind Waker. Good afternoon, I'm Donna Gregory. And I'm Heidi Deja. There are waiting lists and tickets just to stand in line and get a chance to buy PlayStation 2. A story of one man's struggle to save mankind from extermination and his quest to win the heart of the woman he loves. And a new mess will be written in the blood of the old. God of War made it in for mature. Just like the Xbox, it is truly the future of video games and I'm very excited to simply be a part of it if you smell what The Rock is cooking. I just got into Xbox Live. I uh, have this really great high-speed connection, and I need a weapon. There are those who said this day will never come. What are they to say now? Rated M for mature. As one warrior falls, two shall take its place, as is the creed of the console wars. As Sega is laid to rest, Sony and Microsoft join the fight, bringing forth the era of the most influential game since Mario, changing people's perspectives in more ways than one, while also taking gaming to a new frontier, broadband internet. Tell me, Greg, in this era of your gaming life, what devices did you game on? What was your favorite? And do you remember how you got them? Yeah, uh, in this era was when I started in 2000, I was working at EGM at this point, Electronic Gaming Monthly. So I was playing on pretty much everything. Um, I was still sort of basking in the glow of the Dreamcast. 
I loved the Dreamcast, uh, but not like I did the Saturn. I really liked that system. It was great. I think it was ahead of its time. Um, I remember when the PlayStation 2 came out, um, noting how, in a lot of ways, Dreamcast games looked better, especially as far as texture uh, quality went. And of course, while it wasn't broadband, you could play your Dreamcast online out of the box, which was huge, putting in that 56K modem. It sounds laughable to say that now, but 56K. Um, and me and one of the uh, other EGM editors, uh, Chris Johnston, who I actually do my podcast with, um, spent endless nights playing a game called Speed Devils Online Racing uh, with people online. Um, it's still one of my fondest memories. But I will have to say probably, at least for the first part of this era, I would have to say PlayStation 2 is my favorite memory, uh, my favorite system there, just because it was so popular and so ubiquitous that by the end of its life, you were getting a lot of really oddball titles that I don't think would have normally made its way, made their way to North America, um, along with, of course, and I think Xbox has a lot to do with this too, a lot, a lot, of, a lot more American games happening, uh, American developed games happening on consoles that I think weren't before. But um, I was a big PlayStation 2 fan, big Xbox fan. Um, GameCube, I liked a few games. I, I was looking at my collection tonight, and I, it's probably one of the smallest collections I have is GameCube, whereas PlayStation 2 and Xbox are two of the biggest collections I have. So, um, yeah, I, I was definitely a PlayStation 2 fan and loved having the Xbox for the um, system exclusives. That was the big thing. I was a big fan of the system exclusives on the Xbox. So you didn't really like um, th- it might be overblown because I was this is like me when I had the Xbox. This is like my prime like scummy console war era where <laughs> I had no shame and I like there was no Twitter or anything like that. But uh, like I, I would like rip on kids at school that had PS2s because the Xbox games ran better. They, they had did look better. They yeah. had they did look better, but that didn't matter to you. No, not really. I mean, and but you got to remember. So, like, you're talking about how this was your prime sort of console war days. My, I was at my most cringiest. For me, at least the first <laughs> half of the 2000s, I wasn't even paying for my video games. Okay. So you know, I was getting them. I was playing as part of my job. I was playing them, um, and getting a lot of them for free uh, as press. So. <clears throat> it was a little bit different, although I did buy my PlayStation 2. I, I'm one of the people who actually stayed outside of Best Buy overnight in Chicago in the freezing cold to buy my PlayStation 2. But uh, as far as my Xbox and I think my GameCube, we got those from Microsoft and Nintendo. Okay. So when you don't pay for things, it, it's definitely different. Yeah. The, the, the you don't have as much of a, thing doesn't really take hold yeah. so much. You don't have to justify your purchase yeah. by tribal warfare. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. So what are some of these uh, these PS2 games that you, that really stand out to you? Because I, I am keep in mind, I am so biased like this. My opinion is so irrelevant here. But I actually had a conversation about this with uh, my friend Mo from the Backlog Chronicles podcast. Uh, and he had said, like, I was talking about how I love the Xbox games library, kind of similar conversation we had a few minutes ago. Uh, and he was saying, but the PS2 library was so good. And I was like, okay, well, let's let's go game for game. We'll name games that are really good. And, like, he couldn't think of any because there's, like, I like people have this, always say that the PS2 library is, like, huge and awesome and great. And it's one of the best libraries of all time. It's definitely the biggest library, I think, of all time. That, yeah, that might actually be a... That might be an actual fact, yeah. but I, I'm not, and again, 
for anyone listening that's not an Xbox fan and a PlayStation fan, I am so biased when it comes to this area that do not take what I'm saying seriously at all. But I think that the Xbox had a, like a massively better library. So I'm really curious to what games like I'm talking about games that you couldn't have played on Xbox. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to go through and figure that out exactly. But uh, like, I mean, I guess to begin with um, anything that came from Sony itself, obviously, because mm. the PlayStation 2 is where um, Jack and Daxter uh, was a thing. Uh, Ratchet and Clank, that series started there. Uh, Sly Cooper, that series started on there. Um, there was a lot of stuff, too, I find on that system that it might have come out later on the Xbox, but like it kind of came out first. So when it was hot and when I was yeah. really into it, as an example, um, the Grand Theft Auto games, mm-hmm. three and Vice City, I think in particular, those two came out first on that system. Um, same with like the Devil May Cry games, Dragon Quest eight uh, came out on that system. Um, Final Fantasies were all on the PlayStation two as well. So, you know, God of War, um, Gran Turismo, which was hugely important to me. Gran Turismo 3 was a revelation when it came out. So, you know, there were a ton of great games on that system that you couldn't get on the Xbox, which is why I always kind of looked at it from the standpoint of, actually, I thought it was worth owning all three. Um, Because I wanted my PlayStation 2 for the things I couldn't play on Xbox. I wanted my Xbox for things I couldn't play on PlayStation 2. And I wanted a GameCube for Nintendo games. I didn't care about much else. Right. So, you know, I mean... You still had, I think the the easiest way to put it is you had more Japanese game support on the PlayStation 2 that you Absolutely. didn't get on the Xbox. If that wasn't important to you, then it didn't matter. You know what Which I mean? It right. wasn't, but I think it wasn't because I was a console warrior where like, <laughs> I don't want to play these. I can't play. I really do want to play them, but I just can't play them. But right. so I'm going to pretend like I hate right. Japanese RPGs, which I definitely did. Because again, I'm like 13, 14, 15. I'm a like degenerate, right? So I'm definitely more evolved now. Like I have, I've, I I still don't actually play a lot of JRPGs, but I, I have all three and, and I, 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 I'm retired. I'm a retired console warrior. Yeah. But um. One question I had is, correct me if I'm wrong, you said you had started at EGM in 2000, mm-hmm. and before that you did work in games media, but it was like an indie uh, kind of site that you had created. So, and I could be like off base here, but when when the Xbox came out, um, and maybe the GameCube, I can't actually remember what year that came out, but those two consoles would have been like announced and gone through like the preview cycle and the release cycle and been really fresh mm-hmm. uh, all while you were covering them and in the industry and, and perhaps like getting early access or or getting like demos of things before like before before these consoles came out whereas every single console that you would have played before then you would have been on the other end of the spectrum just like absorbing all of the yeah. all of the hype and then hoping to get one maybe getting one at launch um so I'm curious how that kind of may have changed uh, how excited you were for these consoles or if that affected uh, like how much you liked those consoles that you didn't have to buy, that you had to work on and cover as a job and, and whatnot. Sure. Yeah. So and now that you're saying that, I think it was probably 2001 that I started at EGM. I started at Ziff Davis, which was the publisher in 1999, working on Expert Gamer, which was okay. like Tips and Tricks magazine. Um, and then I shifted over to EGM, I think 2001, because uh, I was still at Expert Gamer when the PlayStation 2 came out in Japan. 
but I was at EGM when it came out in the US. So it was right in that 2001 era. And I believe GameCube and, and Xbox came out in 2002, maybe. 2001 for Xbox, for sure. I, I don't know about GameCube. It oh, was, was November it? Okay. 15th, 2001 for Xbox. Then. I thought anyway, PlayStation was 2000, but that might just be maybe I have that. I mean, you know what? I must have that wrong. Yeah, I must be off by a year on everything. So yeah, but you're absolutely right. So the Xbox and the GameCube were systems that came out while I was in the gaming press, like from start to finish. And it was it was interesting. Um, for me, the biggest difference was outside of, again, not necessarily paying for these consoles, was um, access to the Japanese versions of them. Um, I had previously imported a Dreamcast. I was super excited about the Dreamcast and had actually imported one in 1998. Um, that was the first time I'd ever done that. But again, you're, you're kind of at the mercy of what the games press is telling you as opposed to what they know um, at that point. So for me, the big thing was um, sort of being completely ensconced in all the news surrounding all this stuff. I mean, we did a, we did a, um, a worldwide reveal of the Xbox uh, previous to it coming out. Uh, I wasn't the one who went to Redmond to cover that, but I was one of the people who was working at the magazine at the time. So, you know, as far as copy editing and things go, so, and, and the people who did go there came back and they were talking about it nonstop. So like you're, you're sort of really neck deep in information and it's, it's part of your daily job to know it and to be part of it and to be absorbing it. So as a fan, I would do that based on what the different magazines were saying, but as an editor, you kind of couldn't get away from it. And it was it was kind of great, especially for an early 20-something video game nerd who kind of your whole life revolved around that anyway, to be completely on the inside and in the know for all that sort of thing. As far as the first time playing them, um, it was amazing, actually, because <clears throat> we did a, a launch issue for the Xbox and the GameCube. It was actually one issue uh, because they both came out at the exact same time or I think within days of one another. And so because of magazine lead times, if we were going to cover them, we had to play them months before they came out. And so we actually talked Microsoft and Nintendo, who were both on the West Coast, to actually both in, in Washington at the time, um, to bring consoles to our offices in Chicago for like two or three days. And we literally just had this two or, two or three day stretch where all of us editors did nothing but play GameCube and Xbox games uh, mm -hmm. months before they came out, which was amazing. Um, actually, I should say weeks before they came out. It was actually very, very soon after 9-11. Uh, weirdly enough, I remember that. But um, yeah, so like we, I, I vividly remember us. I, I remember Microsoft showing up with this gigantic like steamer case, steamer trunks because the Xbox was a huge console. Um, you know, all that power, all that power <laughs> and, and like setting them up and us hooking them up to the office LAN to play Halo, to play what? 16 players, I think was the yep. highest you could play 16 player Halo. Uh, and it was all just a bunch of tables and the magazine actually has a picture of this, that issue, a bunch of tables with our little, we had little Sony, uh, Trinitron televisions in our cubicles usually. And they were set up with an Xbox next to each of them and just a huge crowd of, of Ziff Davis employees and editors sitting there playing halo um again weeks before it came out which was amazing and then at the same time at the other end of the building we had nintendo there with game cubes and uh we actually learned during that situation that uh rogue leader was reviewable the copy that they brought with them was reviewable so we actually sat there all night 
the first night and played through until we rolled credits on Rogue Leader so that we could review the game in the upcoming issue as well. And I mean, that looked amazing, too. I loved Luigi's Mansion as well. So, you know, it's like it was just this. It was so weird. It was like being at a theme park or something. It was like the coolest thing in the world. You couldn't believe you got paid to do this. And then like a month later, Microsoft in particular was like, oh, and here's 15 Xboxes. Hand them out to your editors. You know, let them take them home that they belong to them. And even things like uh, when live came out, they sent us all the headsets. You remember the headsets that came with live? They sent us all headsets, but they had our names, our our gamer tags written on them. Really? Yeah. It was really neat. Microsoft was amazing when they brought out the Xbox. That team was incredible. They were so, they were in it to win it. They were so media friendly. They were so developer friendly. It was awesome. It was a great time. Yeah, I can only imagine. Uh, one thing I heard you say there is you said one like, like there was a copy of of Rogue Leader that was like quote reviewable. Mm. Did they send you like copies that were like maybe specific for a preview that weren't that you you couldn't like do certain things or you couldn't score because like obviously back then you're not getting like uh, like Steam codes or anything like that. Right. So is that how the process? I don't know if you're even this is like yeah, top no. secret or whatever, but is that how the process worked is they would send you like an early build on a disc and you would play it on like a dev console or something like that to write a preview, for example, for the most part you would now in that situation, obviously there were no, uh, w- they were usually test consoles, not dev consoles. Um, there were none for either of those, those systems. <clears throat> um, and different companies did different things. Like, like when we had preview discs on like a dreamcast, you had what was called a key disc. And you would load that up first and then swap it out for whatever the build was. Uh, for like PlayStation 2, you had test kits. So if you got early builds, they would just they would only run on a test kit. But yeah, that was normally how it worked. The, the, the build would show up and it would say whether it was reviewable or not. And uh, then you would go from there. Now with Nintendo, it worked differently. Nintendo was very, very high security. Um, so like in a situation, as an example, um, if... Say Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy X came out. <clears throat> we would get a review build. Usually a Squaresoft game would come with caveats with like, you know, don't show any screenshots of this. You know, like that was part of the NDA that you would sign. Uh, and don't talk about this element of the story because they just didn't want you to give away the plot in any of your coverage. Uh, but that was it. Otherwise, you sort, of, you sort of, you know, run your own. If you wanted to take a test kit home so that you could play it to review it, you could do that. It didn't have to stay in the building. You were trusted that you weren't going to leak it or anything like that. Mm. And back then it was harder to do stuff like that anyway, because the internet wasn't, you know, broadband internet wasn't really a thing. Um, For Nintendo, as an example, I remember reviewing Paper Mario on the N64. And the way that worked is a Nintendo rep would show up with an N64 and the cartridge locked in a steel box <laughs> that had holes for the controller ports and the uh, the power and, and and AV cable. And that was it. The person that was there, the rep, did not have the key to the lockbox. So it had been packaged up in Redmond, sent with them. The rule was they had to be in the room at all times while it was being used. Technically, if they went to the bathroom, they were supposed to unhook everything, put it back in the case and take it with them. So like I what remember they worried about here. <laughs> like, Well, I think it had to I mean, it had to do with piracy and Nintendo was was, uh, you know, always fighting piracy. And I know that there was uh, a, a situation, I think, on N64 in particular, where like the N64 version of Resident Evil 2, a review version was leaked 
and Capcom, one of the other things that a lot of companies would do is they would sort of, I don't know how software wise, like stamp where a build went. So they knew where the build had come from, who had leaked it and that sort of thing. And Nintendo was just all about not letting that ever happen. So, you know, for better or worse, I remember when I reviewed Paper Mario, it was just me and the Nintendo rep in the building at like 2 a.m. because I was still playing and she had to stick around. So, wow. yeah, Must have been super comfortable, like such a great experience. Yeah, it was different. But I mean, yeah. they were still like that with the GameCube. So so like even through all that, although with the Xbox, they weren't super, you know, like it wasn't a, like don't let it out of my sight kind of thing. But they were always around anyway, because this yeah. was a system that wasn't out yet. Now, I know that, uh, like, specifically, like, Halo, for example, like, I, I don't know, I have a lot of Halo facts in my in my brain, uh, unsurprisingly, but I know that at the E3 before launch, specifically, like, the build was, like, horrible. Like, most people thought the game was uh, trash and, like, the Xbox was doomed and, and it would, there's no chance that you could, you could turn what they played into something good by November 15th. Um, and I'm wondering if you've ever... Well, maybe a have you did you play that build or b have you played uh like a game in it in an early state that uh, wasn't in great shape and and did that ever affect like your excitement for the final product or did that like ever skew like how you look at a game that maybe you didn't even check out at launch because of your early impressions that that not everybody would be able to get. Hmm. I can't think of anything that was in terrible shape. No, first of all, I did not play that build of Halo. The first time I ever played Halo was when they brought it to us for that uh, for that launch issue. Um, and it was in pretty great shape by that point. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I can't think of a game that was terrible or so terrible in a preview build that it, it soured me on it. Um, I can think of games that were pretty different in preview builds. Like... As an example, Eco on the PlayStation 2, I remember playing a preview build of that and it was still really good, but it was pretty different from what came out in the the, the final version. I really wish I kept that build, to be honest, because it was so it felt so different. But um, no, nothing like that really. You know, I mean, we played a, a, our fair share of really buggy, broken games, but you kind of understood that was the case. It wasn't necessarily that gameplay was bad so much as, you know, this is software. This is how it's done. This is an alpha build. It's got tons of bugs. It's going to crash after five minutes. You know, like it is what it is, but it didn't really sour you on the game when it came out. Cool. Um, and also another big thing that happened in uh, in this era was uh, was games started connecting. Like I know that the Dreamcast you said had a 56K modem, but we're in the big leagues now in this <laughs> generation and we have broadband, DSL, high speed internet, Halo 2, stuff like that, uh, Xbox Live. Now you were there at the from the dawn of this potentially I think you you were probably still in games media at the time mm-hmm. I'm guessing and so you got to see this coming I'm just wondering how that affected uh affected you like it, it made a huge change in me I changed the games I play completely I went from playing mostly single player to almost only Halo 2 and other multiplayer games Um yeah for me it was uh well I remember vividly the first time we played anything on live as editors because I think if you remember live, I want to say that Microsoft really launched it with their football game. That was kind of the like the big first live game. Uh, yeah, I mean that was one of them. It was uh, NFL Fever two thousand and three. Um, there, are, yeah, two thousand three. I think uh, there is other like Unreal Championship was a big one at launch. Yeah. Uh, Top Spin, I think, was there potentially. Um, 
Yeah. I think Project Gotham 2 was a that big was, one. That was the big one for me. Project Gotham 2 was the big one for me. Um Cat so and mouse. I, yeah, I, I remember I remember our editors wasn't me so much but like our sports editors actually playing a game of fever um with like people in my in Redmond, people from nice. Microsoft as a as a demo of what live could do. Now remember we're also still this was better than it was on Dreamcast, but I mean a lot of these people were big fantasy star online players on Dreamcast. Um and NFL 2K series also had online play that they these guys are really taking advantage of. For me though, it was absolutely Project Gotham 2, the fact that you bring that up is is perfect because that was the game for me that I was like I am really enjoying this because <clears throat> previously, I mean 56k you're still using a phone line. So it wasn't convenient, right? Um you were you were taking up your phone line for to play online so you weren't always online the thing with the xbox and the thing with like project gotham in particular for me was that you're just always online you're just always connected and that was the big difference and that was the thing that amazed me and i loved even if i wasn't racing against other people online at that moment when i finished an event the first thing that popped up was the online leaderboards Mm -hmm. and you could have it filtered to just your friends right and i was like yes that is awesome i love this like and it seems like such a weird thing now because it's so common and maybe not even that important to people anymore but back then you know especially if i had friends who were playing the game at the same time and i know like i am so much better at this than cj or you know oh man damien has me beat by like two seconds on this lap i gotta go back and play that again so that was huge like it was an absolute game changer and yeah microsoft uh, was way ahead of the curve on that. I mean, it took Sony forever to do that on the PlayStation 2. And when they did, they didn't implement it very well. And same no. with, you know, Nintendo being Nintendo and just doing whatever they wanted, you know, which has always worked for them. They had an online adapter that you could buy if you, especially, I think it was mostly for Fantasy Star Online 3, but um, I never had one. I never used it, but I I loved having connectivity on my on my Xbox games. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, speaking of Xbox, another uh, another console came out right around this time as well, the Xbox 360. Um, again, my perception of this whole time and this whole period of time is skewed heavily. But my like my recollection of this is it went from everybody like thinking Xbox is like this underdog console. PlayStation 2 is a dominant brand like that is like the one console xbox is like number two or three even in a lot of people's eyes uh but it seemed like that at least in the west like in north america that perception like completely uno reversed and with the 360 coming out that was the first and and to, to this day probably the only point uh in time where microsoft was really kind of leading the charge i mean they they physically led the charge because they came out first, but also I think that the mind share and the perception of the outside of red ring, which was obviously a major problem. I think that that kind of, uh, and I could be completely wrong too, cause I was a fanboy, but I think that they really kind of changed things. And I'm wondering being at ground zero when that happened. Uh, cause I, I imagine, and this, this could be also like a complete, uh, misunderstanding as well, but I'm assuming that when you got review codes of games, a lot of the times you, the, if it was a multi-platform game, you probably got the PlayStation version, unless there was some marketing uh, thing with Microsoft, because the PlayStation is going to have more people. Uh, more people have that that copy. That more 
uh, people that buy the magazine are going to have a PlayStation 2. So it makes sense to to like write for them, I guess, in some way, even though it kind of works. Uh, maybe a little bit. But I mean, no, normally you would get whatever was available. Um, okay. So and I was I had actually left at this point. I was actually back in Nova Scotia. I was freelancing at the time. Um, but I mean, yeah, let's let's talk about 360 and the launch for a while. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think that 360 is a wonderful example of almost perfect marketing for a system launch. Um, Microsoft just did everything right with that launch. And you even mentioned the Red Ring, which should have been a huge disaster. If you remember, Microsoft managed to turn that into a plus somehow. I still don't understand how they did it. But, you know, when when it finally became such a big thing that was happening, and then they just started replacing consoles, it was still a pain in the ass. You know, I mean, I went through three Xbox 360s. Um, yeah. And everyone, I don't know a person who owned a 360 who didn't have a Red Ring. At least not early on, right? I did. I did. You never I, Red Ringed your 360? Wow. So I, when the Halo 3 console came out, the green one with the orange yeah. disc tray, I sold my white one to get that uh, one. And like, as when I like reset the console and turned it on, it Red Ringed. And I was like, oh my God, I'm about to sell this. So I turned it off. And I just like was like, I didn't see that. That didn't happen. I turned it back on. It was fine. <laughs> so then I just sold it. And as far as I know, it, it didn't red ring. It, it probably did. It probably but you know did. what? But th- there's a great example. Even if it did, whoever you sold that to was able to call Microsoft and get a replacement. You didn't mm-hmm. need didn't need to be under warranty. You didn't need to prove where you got it. You know what I mean? Like they they handled it right. But I mean, as far as the 360 goes, I think if you were a hardcore I need Japanese rpgs the jap again the japanese game support on the 360 was not great um if that mattered to you that was a thing but i know that for me personally there were two things first of all the fact that it came out early somehow they made that work like previously it had been shown well i shouldn't say because playstation 2 kind of had that happening too but like mm-hmm. looking like the dreamcast ugh, or the saturn 999 yeah but um I remember, like, I didn't pay for my 360, not because they sent one to me, but because I won it. If you remember, they were giving those things away. You at won the beginning. it? Yeah. So when, <laughs> when the 360 was about to launch, they had this huge campaign where I think it was Mountain Dew and Doritos, of course, um, where you could, I think it was Mountain Dew, and I can't remember exactly, but where you could buy either of those products and you would get a code. And then you could go to a website and you could input that code. Uh, during and I think there was a draw every. I think in the U.S. it was every hour, and I think in Canada it was every day or something along those lines. They would give away one a day, and in the U.S. I think they were giving away one an hour or something like that. And I was freelancing at the time, so I was working from home. And sort of the crew that I hung out with realized, of course, most of those most of those contests are no purchase necessary. So you could also go to a website and fill out a. Uh, an online survey and you and it would generate a code and there was no limit to the amount of times you could do that wow so those of us who were working from home i was doing surveys a dozen times a day and the best thing was is that the codes were good for the the entirety of the giveaway so you could either input the codes immediately as as sort of you know here's your ticket best of luck or you could shotgun blast them all into one drawing and up your chances and that's how i got my 360 i ended up winning one of those draws wow so and they sent out like the system and i think it came with call of duty 2 and 
I want to say Ridge Racer 6. PGR3 was a launch title. Maybe PGR3. Yeah, it was one of those. But anyway, mm-hmm. it was like, that's how I got my 360. But I mean, that too. Everybody I knew knew that was happening and were actually in on that and trying. And a lot of people I knew won consoles. Wow. Because of that. So again, I, they were giving it away, right? Like my they dad just, bought one like a sucker. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the red ring thing too. Like it was, a, it was a pain in the ass. But they managed to turn it into something like, uh, kind of like a positive PR thing. It's like we care about you. You know what I mean? <laughs> We're wow. gonna make sure that you get a new Xbox. So, well, it's good yeah. to see that I wasn't like total like like fanboy vision in that time. I I like looking back on it. Like I don't know how it worked. I remember being like I don't know how old I would have been like sixteen or fifteen. And Jay Allard's like the console's designed with a dual concavity <laughs> to simulate an inhale of breath. And I'm just like, oh my god, that's god. so awesome. Which like saying it out loud is pretty embarrassing because it's not really that awesome. But uh. Yeah, no, that's cool to see. And then the PlayStation Three obviously did come out, and one of the main differences between the PS Three and the P or the the Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty is that it again switched to a different uh, form of media, like the media format is different with Blu-ray. So there are advantages to Blu-ray. Um, uh, I don't think they really reared their head in that generation uh, necessarily, uh, but I'm curious because you seem to be at least previous gens very. Uh, into that conversation in terms of of analyzing like what the types of media are being used to run these games, and I'm wondering if that ever really played a factor for you, uh, DVD versus Blu-ray, uh, and not from a movie perspective because that's a reason why everyone bought a PS3 because 360 was better, right? That that was literally what I said to <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, I'm wondering if if that was a big part of uh, your thought process in terms of where you wanted to play specific games, maybe multi-platform games, or was that a reason why you were excited for a PS3? Uh, was the format thing just just carrying it back to the, right. the 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 laser or the Sega CD? I was excited for PS3 because it was Sony. For the same reason, I was excited for the Saturn back in the '90s. Was that you know uh, I liked the Xbox a lot, but I still played more PlayStation 2 um, because I was more into the sort of the Japanese games that came out. And I had mentioned earlier, you got some real oddball stuff coming out near the end of that system's life, which I really enjoyed, like stuff like uh, Guitar Man and Mad Maestro and and um, stuff like that, like just weird games that would never come here. Um, Katamari Damacy, that sort of thing. Um, and at that point, too, and I still am to this day, I just buy the consoles that come out. You know, I was at that point where, because um, I'm, I was in my late twenties. Now I was, I was pushing thirty, and it's like, well, I'm just going to buy both. Um, but <clears throat> I think what was really interesting, and what I remember the most about the launch of both those systems. First of all, I remember the PS3 launch being really disappointing. Um, I don't remember a game really standing out that I super enjoyed. The other thing was, as I was in game development at the time. And the interesting thing to me was that one of the reasons to buy the PS3 was it was more powerful. And I think on a, from a raw, a raw horsepower perspective, and I don't know specs very well, but from raw horsepower, it was more powerful than the 360. But Microsoft had done such a good job of getting that 360 out there and getting that sort of really strong market base that Really, most game developers, if you were making it, if you're making your game for both consoles, your target platform was the 360 because it was weaker. 
You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. it had to run well on the 360. If you made it so it could only run well on the PS3, then you had a huge chunk of the market that you weren't going to reach or you're going to reach with a with a uh, shoddy version of your game, right? So, and then the Wii was kind of, <laughs> at that point when you were developing Wii games, you were actually looking at GameCube code base more than anything else because they were just not on the same level. But um, yeah, so I think being more powerful and being really hard to develop for along with how brutally arrogant Sony was when they were releasing. If you remember when they were talking about the PS3 and they released the price and there was a huge backlash on the price, one of the executives, and it might have been Kaz Harai, I don't remember, said PS3 is going to be so popular that people will get second jobs to buy one. Yeah, it was him. And I remember, and I I don't know if you curse on this show or not, but I remember so many people, including myself, being like, fuck you, man. Like, that's not... I'm not I'm not down with that. Like that's not cool. And then it came out and it was so, sort of such a a as I remember and maybe I'm wrong, it, it just seemed like such a non-event when it launched. I stood in line for one. Um and I got that and a Wii on the same day because again, that they launched on the same day and I I really lucky that I managed to get both on launch. And I I was just so not enamored with either of them when it came out. I was back on my 360 almost immediately. And I think one of the other things for me personally, and I think for sort of the mass market in general, that Microsoft did so perfectly on the 360 was two things. Achievements yep, were massive and Xbox Live in general. Again, they took Xbox Live to the next level. And in the first year or two of the 360, I know a lot of the games that I played, I wouldn't have played. And the only reason I did is because me and my friends... And I think the the market as a whole migrated from game to game because we could all see what everybody was playing and we could all see what everybody was getting for achievements. And it's like, I know that, um, you know, I'm I'm playing Call of Duty. I'm playing Call of Duty 2 on a harder difficulty than I would normally because you need to play it on the hard difficulty to get the achievements. And I was so enamored with achievements that I wanted to do it. And then it's like, I'm looking on my friends list and it's like, everybody's playing Dead Rising. What the hell's Dead Rising? Right. And you go look it up and it's like, oh, okay, it's like this zombie shooter. All right. Well, I'm going to play that now because everyone's playing it. And then everyone's playing Lost Planet. All right. I'll go play Lost Planet now. You know, so I know I bought games that I wouldn't have bought because my friends were playing them and it was brilliant. And it was another example of Microsoft just got that right. And it took Sony way too long to emulate them. And even when they did, they didn't do it right. For sure. One thing I, I kind of wanted to pick your brain at, because again, like I'm a, I, I was in a different, I had a different perspective, let's say, especially when it comes to what games I played during that era, I was pretending like I didn't like anything that came from Japan because I was, this is the tail end, by the way, of me being a fanboy, like halfway through this gen is when I, I, I smartened up, but we're not there yet. So I'm still like a pretty big degenerate at this point, but in terms of JRPGs, you had said that that was kind of um, uh, you, up your alley. Like those are games that you enjoy and and you enjoyed what the PlayStation was offering in that regard. The early 360 days, like especially the first half of the 360, let's say, that's when Microsoft took the biggest swing they've ever taken in terms of getting exclusive content on uh, from Japan on the Xbox uh, 360. You had mentioned uh, Katamari, like the, the next-gen version of that game, I think was actually Xbox exclusive. Uh, they they 
had a game. I think it's actually one of the last games made by um, Hironobu Sakaguchi, Final Fantasy creator with Lost Odyssey, Blue Dragon, which has uh, Akira Toriyama artwork. Uh, last Revenant, I think, was a Square Enix JRPG that was exclusive. Um, there's another one that I'm blanking on. Uh, Infinite Undiscovery. I had to look up my shelf there. Oh, yeah, that was... That. That was also a JRPG from from Square Enix. Uh, like I don't think any of these games are necessarily like um, generational titles. Although I really, really think Lost Odyssey actually might be. Um, but there was actually a, a really, in terms of number of titles, JRPG specifically. I think that the what they were releasing exclusive exclusively was pretty on par. Uh, in terms of what games Sony has were releasing in the first few years, because mm-hmm. I don't think there was really any JRPGs that Sony released that were exceptional in the first half either. Like the Final Fantasy 13, which isn't very much loved by Final Fantasy fans, but those games also came on Xbox as mm-hmm. well. So there was actually a, a ton of JRPGs there, and I'm wondering if you played those games and they just weren't good or there's just kind of the stigma from the rich the past generation where they didn't have that and JR, if you want to play a jrpg you play it on playstation uh no and, and for me it kind of shifted and the big reason why is because i started having kids um, long. yeah so you know I, I didn't have the time to play i am a you, you're talking about how you're a retired fanboy i am a retired jrpg player um unfortunately i still love them but i just don't have that kind of time i'm not willing to put that kind of time in now that my kids are older maybe i'll start doing it again but no you're right you're absolutely right and it's so funny that you're saying that uh hearing you say that because you totally sound like those of us who were genesis kids back in the early 90s saying like you know you'd hear well there's no rpgs on the genesis like yes there is and then you just like rattle off like 10 of them um I never played any of those games. I just know yeah. they're there because I had yeah. to have this argument all the time on Game Facts. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And I think it, it came down to, again, it was more uh, PlayStation 3 for me was because I just bought all the consoles. Now, having said that, <clears throat> by the end of that generation, the PlayStation 3 had really come on. Sony really turned that around. Um, and Again, a lot of it had to do with uh, their own games. You know what I mean? Like, I was a big fan of the Uncharted series on the PlayStation 3. Uh, the Last of Us came out near the end of the PlayStation 3, which is one of my favorites. You know, like, and there was some great Ratchet and Clank games on the PlayStation 3. There was um, Infamous. So, I mean, they, they had a lot of great series going on that system as well. Uh, it became very strong. It just took a long time to get there. And And on the flip side, Microsoft in that generation started out so strong um, that, you know, I, I think they, I think the balance came, well, it came very close to balance by the end of that generation, I think, but it, it, it absolutely tipped in Microsoft's favor at the beginning of it. For sure. Yeah. They kind of, they kind of switch roles at, in the, in the latter half where Microsoft was, was being extremely arrogant Forza, Halo gears. That's mm-hmm. all we need. Uh, and Sony was being very generous and very experimental with the games they were making. They were get, making extremely cinematic games that were not necessarily long and weren't going to be evergreen titles like Halo or Gears or, or Forza, but they were going to be very spectacular games. And then obviously, the I think one of the biggest TSN turning points was uh, uh, PS Plus, which is kind of a progenitor mm-hmm. almost to Game Pass. Uh, and just that generosity, that like customer focus, all the stuff they weren't doing in the first half, they they did, and 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 then 
I don't think they won. I don't think anybody won that generation. I think that's a generation, maybe one of the only ones where you could point to both and say they they tied. Because I think you, even did the we win? No, what we? <laughs> <laughs> I say that with a. You can't see this on the podcast. But I literally I, have a stack of a Wii stack games. Stack of Wii games next to you. I know it's like no. I'm trying to get my daughter to play video games, and I'm striking out on everything. So I dug a Wii out of my closet. I'm gonna boot. I, I my Wii Sports disc. I guess did fell out the case. It doesn't work anymore. So I have to oh. find another one. But yeah. Anyway, that's why I have a stack of Wii games here. Uh, I think Wii was 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 running. You might disagree, but I think Wii was running a different race. I think they won their race, but I don't yeah. think it was the same race. No, I absolutely agree. And I mean, we haven't really touched on that uh, <clears throat> for this era at all because, you know, we haven't really talked too much about GameCube. Well, I guess we did a little bit, but uh, this was absolutely the time when Nintendo was like, okay, you guys go do the horsepower race. That's fine. You know, we're going to go do our own thing because we're Nintendo and we can. You know, like, I don't feel like any, I don't think like, I don't feel like Sony and Microsoft could do what Nintendo does and be as successful for whatever reason nintendo just does it right and people keep sticking with them and i don't blame them nintendo makes amazing games so you know but yeah it, it, we started out super strong they were definitely marketing to a completely different group i'm glad i had one but again i was going through before we recorded tonight and sort of listing like oh what were the big wii games for me and i came up with two so you know like i i was not all in on the Wii at all. And then the Wii U was exactly the same way. So mm -hmm. yeah. so speaking of games, before we move on to the final quarter, was there like what games were there that stood out? You had mentioned already um, some of the PGR2, for example, and, and early Xbox Live games. But we never really talked about any specific games outside of like Uncharted, like you had mentioned earlier, uh, for 360 PS3. I'm wondering what are some of the, the, the titles there that really stood out to you or, or memorable? Um, yeah, outside of the ones that we already mentioned, um, I, I was, I'm, I am a big fan of, uh, the Bioshock series. I thought it was just incredible when it came out and I, and I will die on, uh, the hill, uh, of saying Bioshock two is an excellent game. I don't think people like that game nearly as much as they should personally. Um, you're waiting to say something. So. This is going to this is going to turn into another conversation. So I'll let you finish this thought, okay. but I'll just give a preview. I think Bioshock is one of the best games ever, and one of my main memories from that, which uh, is kind of interesting, I think, is I saw Bioshock on a website or whatever, um, but I had to go to work. And uh, there was like this video, I think, uh, that you had like because I don't think YouTube was there yet. Um, so you had to download the video to watch it. And I couldn't download the video because I didn't have time because I had to go to work. But I could download uh, Major Nelson Radio because oh uh, that Major was because that was a smaller file. I had enough time to do that. I wouldn't be late for work. So I downloaded this weird thing called a podcast, Major Nelson Radio podcast, where they talked about Bioshock and they interviewed Ken Levine. And I went to work, and while I was lubing up and cleaning the TCBY frozen yogurt machine at the movie theater, I was listening to them talk about Bioshock, and that was the first podcast I ever listened to. And I think that in this era, there might be some podcast-related stuff we could talk to. That's why I didn't want to derail it. So I'll let you finish talking about games, and we can we can head over to that. Sure, I, no. Also, I never played Bioshock 2, although I did play Infinite, and I love both It's really them. good. But people, I mean, I, people I'll don't play it. give it the love it should. A um, couple of the games that really stand out for me on both systems, and you know, I'm just going to sort of run through is like uh, Beyond Good and Evil from Ubisoft. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, Alan Wake, I really, really loved Alan Wake. Uh, 
Portal for me is one of the Portal and Portal Two from that generation are fantastic, um, and the Forza series, especially though Forza Horizon, at the end of the uh, the 360, right near the end of its life, is when Forza Horizon came out. I'm a big racing fan, and I always have been. I hated where racing, open world racing games, were going at that point. Um, the Need for Speed franchise, in particular, I was just absolutely done with. And then Forza Horizon came out and it's like, basically it was like somebody went into my brain and said, okay, everything he doesn't like about open world racing games, we're going to take that all out of our game and just release something that's simple and straightforward and fun. We're going to get rid of all the stupid cop chases and, you know, the like in burnout where you, you touch something and your car is destroyed. We're going to get rid of all that. And just let you drive around the countryside and run races and listen to great music. And I absolutely adore that game. Um, and then, like, the other thing that I really love that was happening around this time, and, and and it's more prevalent in the last quarter, but it was sort of happening now, is you were starting to see more indie games hitting. Um, so smaller experiences. Actually, actually, in 360 in general, Live Arcade, I think, is another big thing that they did great. Um, which I don't think we really touched on, but the whole idea of relatively cheap games. Now they got a lot bigger and a lot more expensive by the end of the the generation, but like cheap games, a lot of them based on old arcade games that you could buy, download really fast, which was important and they were easy to store, but you were starting to see the rise of indie games, stuff like as well, like Papo and Yo for me really stands out. Um, and remakes of older stuff that I love, like the Castle of Illusion and DuckTales remakes were happening in that generation. So those are all on my list too. Big fan. Cool. And before I do want to talk this, like I might be wrong, but this is kind of when player one started right around. Yep. Yeah. So before I start, so we did was the, was uh, our, my, my co-host CJ was going out and talking to people who were in line for their PlayStation threes and Wii's. Oh, really? That's, yeah. that's really cool. Um, <laughs> I miss standing in line for stuff, man. I don't. I even I even <laughs> went to lineups that I wasn't like. Again, th- this is this is the last quarter I'm going to be able to talk about my fanboy pass. So I, I had to bring this up too. I used to go because, like, I wasn't just a console fanboy. I was like also a game fanboy. So obviously, I love Halo, which means I can't love Call of Duty. Of so during the Call of Duty Midnight launches, um this might be irrelevant to listeners, but where we live, there's a Best Buy and a Future Shop that are like basically separated by their parking lots. And I would drive past the lineup, like in a circle, driving past each lineup, blasting the Halo theme song. Oh my God. Well, with a Halo helmet on, like a cheap Halloween store one for like 30 minutes. Was that you I saw on the news? <laughs> I hope it made the news. But it probably, but yeah. Anyway, standing in line is cool. Uh, before I do want to talk about the podcast, but before, mm-hmm. um, before I do that, um, actually, you know what? No, let's just talk about the podcast because talking about that made me completely forget what I was going to ask you. <laughs> so yeah, Player One podcast started right around the same time as things like Gamertag Radio, Major Nelson Radio, uh, all of like the longest tenured podcasts that that you can find that are related to video games like this is like i had mentioned this is around the time when i listened to my first podcast and i was uh like a techie kid so i wasn't like late to the party by a lot um it was a blooming thing it was just starting and you were right at ground zero so uh why don't you talk a little bit about that 
Sure. So, I mean, really what happened, so I had left uh, Ziff Davis um, right around the time that 1UP was starting, 1UP.com. Um, I had to go because of uh, my my work visa. I had to leave. And um, I got into game development after that for a few years. Um, <clears throat> a little bit after that, uh, Chris Johnston, who was also a, a long time, I mean, he had been at EGM for like 15 years. He moved on as well. And he was uh, working at... Um, I forget what it was called. It was an anime magazine down in Texas. And I was freelancing for him during this time as well. And that was around the time that Ziff Davis's and One Up's podcasts were becoming a big thing. But he and I had stayed in constant touch. We were, we've always been close since we first started working with each other at EGM. We would play Burnout online together, actually, talking about Xbox Live. We played Burnout a lot. And that's how we would chat. <clears throat> and really, the way it launched is that um, I ended up getting married in 2007, 2006. I ended up getting married in 2006, and he actually came up to my wedding. And we were sort of hanging out and chatting while he was here and talking about the podcast. And we were both saying, like, you know, our conversations when we're on playing Burnout and stuff, that could be a podcast. Why not? And uh, that was really it. We decided at that moment that we were going to try it. Um, when we started out, we were using um, the headsets that came with SOCOM on the PlayStation 2. Nice. That was all we had for audio gear and microphones. And uh, yeah, we just, and it didn't take off right away, but we just, we decided we were going to uh, brute force it and um, just keep going and keep going and keep going. And uh, we eventually brought on uh, another uh, Ziff Davis alumnus, uh, Phil Theobald, who's our other co-host now. Um, he was a special guest host for about three years for some reason. And then we just decided to start calling him <laughs> co-host and it just sort of what, <clears throat> what it is, what it has turned into is as we've all gotten into our forties and uh, you know, all gotten married and one of us got divorced and had kids and it's kind of become this like old school old man. We've been gaming for 40 years, sort of we're dads now, and this is how things have changed. So we're, it's not it's not about um, it's really about three old friends getting together every week at this point who just happen to be really big gamers. But it's definitely not like what's the latest news uh, punditry. Uh, there's an element of that, but there's just as much, you know, talking about what our kids are playing um, and the trials and tribulations of sort of having them grow up and be gamers like you're talking about how you're trying to get your little one to play video games and now you've you've resorted to breaking out the Wii and, and trying to find a copy of Wii Sports you know like that sort of thing like where our kids are a little older um sort of navigating the pitfalls of of playing Roblox and all the <laughs> jerk stores that are on Roblox trying to rip these little kids off of their their items and that sort of thing like you know that's what it's about um and it's been going for uh, actually i think we're like two episodes away from 15 years yeah point. it's crazy man like it the there's not many podcasts that have that tenure there's a lot of gaming podcasts that that come and go uh there's like less than 10 i can think of less than five i can think of that has been around for that long and kept going which is really good and it's also awesome that um this if there's not any of the BS that you hear a lot in the game space now. It's very real. It's very um, like, like it, it's what like an average gamer would want to hear. Like someone who's not, doesn't want to get caught up in all of that stuff. Uh, and also on top of that, I know that I'm going to give you like time to, to self promo at the end, but I'm going to do some more self promo for you here anyway. Uh, they're also extremely uh, 
welcoming to new podcasters and helpful to new podcasters. You have a lot of guests on your show. CJ in particular was really, really helpful. And you as well. Really, really helpful for me when I first started. I got a lot of information and resources from them. A lot of connections made through uh, the Player One community. It's just really, really, really awesome. So I I, uh, I wanted to mention that here, but I did remember what I was going to ask earlier, uh, and that was you said you had switched over from games journalism to game development in this mm -hmm. era, and I'm just wondering a if you had any cool stories or anything you wanted to share with that, but also uh, being like you you had said that being in games journalism didn't necessarily affect uh, your opinion on games or or how you enjoyed games or anything like that, and if anything, it just allowed you to play more games uh, and feed your hobby even more. But I'm wondering when you get a chance to look under the hood and see how they're made and, and, and like see how the hot dog is made or whatever, if that had up like changed your perception of games or, or at any way in all good or bad impacted your, your hobby. I think it impacted it in a really positive way. And the reason why is <clears throat> I always kind of prided myself on, on not being mean uh, when I was covering games, especially bad games. Um, you know, like nobody sets out to make a bad video game, obviously. It, there, there's so many, and, and this really fits software as a whole, software development as a whole, but talking about video games where it's like, you know, you have a finite budget, you have a finite amount of time, you have a finite amount of people, you don't want to kill them by crunching them like crazy, although that's very common in the game industry. Um, and as a journalist, you would sometimes see the games in progress, although you wouldn't get the context of what had happened and how you got there. But at the end of the day, you're reviewing this product without the context of what might have gone wrong or what decisions were made or changed at the last minute or that sort of thing. So when I got into game development, um, I got into game development because I got an invitation to join a team at Vicious Cycle to work on the second Robotech game. I'm a huge Robotech fan. Like that is one of the, when I was a kid, I just adored that series. I still do. I still watch it like every, watch through it like every year. Um, and they knew that because I had covered their first Robotech game when I was at EGM. And they said, well, why don't you come work on this one? And I kind of really got to see that the end product for Robotech Invasion wasn't great. It was good. It was okay. Um, but I mean, living through, you know, what the grand plans were and then having to come back down to earth based on budget and time, as well as a little bit of feature creep at the end, and then seeing how the press reacted to that, which really hurt. Um, it definitely adjusted my worldview when it came to game development in the games industry. And that's not me. That's not me saying that, you know, video game journalists suck or anything like that, because they have to rate a product based on what they think their readership, uh, you know, what helps their readership um, in, in, in service of their readership. But um, it really sort of opened my eyes to the things that can happen in software development and in game development. So I'm really happy for my time in games development. I don't really miss it, to be honest. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it opened my eyes a lot and it, it definitely made me a different gamer. Um, as far as how I judge things and how quick I am to judge things. For sure. And I, I, I don't have the exact same experience. I, I am a software developer, obviously you knew, you knew that, but um, even though it's not making games, it's still making software. And from, I've only been doing it for a little while, I think four or five years, but uh, it definitely changed my perspective on, on developers in general and the stuff that they have to go through. Cause what I do is, is like so 
like pales in comparison uh, to what game developers do in terms of the complexity, uh, the like the the work that they have to do in terms of like just how much work, the pressure, and like the cr- like I work at a fantastic place with fantastic balance and and not a lot of pressure mm-hmm. and, and and but even that I can see uh, I'm look I'm making very small things and, and gauging people's reactions to it and even uh, seeing some little negative things is is. Uh, upsetting and i couldn't imagine releasing something that's in the public eye and putting all that work into it and a lot of times the the, the, like you said no one like sets out to make a bad game and a lot of the times the decisions that get made that result in the game being bad or or an aspect of the game being bad is usually not made by the people that actually implement or design or develop that feature or, or game or whatever so yeah and that's uh Circling, doubling back again to player one podcast. I think that uh, it's not only you that has that outlook. It's the whole cast of the show. That's another reason why I really, really like uh, listening to that. Because even when there is bad news or there is a game that's not great, uh, you'll either a uh, like <laughs> kind of politely explain the problems with it, or b uh, look for the good and stuff. And honestly, that's part of the inspiration for my entire channel in the first place. So, yeah, which uh, I love. Yeah, it's good Good to see that stuff. Now, was there any other things that you wanted to quickly mention in Q3 before we jump into the final quarter of your life? I think the main thing was, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, I changed also as a gamer based on, well, I look at sort of where I was at the beginning of that, uh, well, throughout this quarter, but it definitely changed near the end. I started having kids in 2007, uh, and that really, really changes how much free time you have and how much money you have. And it really changed changed Big me time. even more as a gamer. Um, I, I absolutely, by the end of this quarter, went from anything I'm remotely interested in, I'm going to buy and play as much as I can, uh, to this upcoming quarter, which is more of like um, the, the amount of games I buy in a year is probably it's probably less than ten at this point, give or take. But it had absolutely everything to do with having children and having to ra- having to raise them. Yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely definitely throws a wrench in in your in your gaming life for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, with that being said, we have one more quarter to talk about, and that will be from 2010 to present day. But before we start, let's put one more coin into that arcade time machine and take a look at what gaming is like nowadays. My favorite part. Exciting. Eyes up, Guardian. It worked. You're alive. You're gonna see a lot of things you won't understand. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Game Awards. Fuck the Oscars, you know? <laughs> Fuck the Oscars! And the winner for Game of the Year 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020 is... Xbox
how you share your games on PS4. Boy. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing Xbox One. TV and movies? TV. Xbox. Watch TV. Sports. Sports. Sport. Sport. Television. Call of Duty. Call of Duty. Call of Duty. Call of Duty. Hey, you. Finally awake. Today, I'm pleased to announce Xbox One backward compatibility. Project Scorpio will be the next addition to the Xbox One family. Xbox Game Pass, a way to give gamers the ultimate freedom to play. ZeniMax has an amazing track record of building great games. Next holiday, Xbox Series X will lead us into the future of console gaming. I think you are now ready, ready to hear what happened 100 years ago. Two thousand and ten to where we are right now. A king falls and a new one rises as PlayStation takes over after the three sixties reign comes to an end. But desperate times call for desperate measures as Xbox looks to level the playing field with Game Pass. All while Nintendo switches things up once again. Greg, in this era of your life, what the final era? <laughs> what well, devices not did the you? Final era, <laughs> what devices did you game on? What was your favorite? And do you remember how you got them? What year did the Xbox One come out? Twenty thirteen. Twenty thirteen. Oh my god. Okay. Uh, I I got an Xbox and a play, Xbox One and a PlayStation Four. Uh, I pre ordered them. I didn't stand in line for them this time. Um, and I got to say that yeah, I was absolutely PlayStation Four almost all the way through that era. Um. The Xbox One was an absolute mess when it came out, um, which I know you and I have talked about offline. Hate to say it. I was ready for it to be great. Um, But yeah, it was just they didn't know what they wanted to do with that. And it hurt even more that it was a Canadian that was at the helm at the time. But no Jeff Keighley. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I mean, it's still I still played a fair amount of games on the Xbox One, but I was definitely a PS4 guy and it was all about. I think what came home to roost there and what I really like about what's changed in the past couple of years is that during the 360 era near the end, I think Microsoft cut a lot of uh, developers loose and um, they canceled a lot of games. And now we see that they've bought a bunch of studios. They've acquired a bunch of studios again. They're really pushing their first party stuff. And that's fantastic. Um, Problem with something like that is it pays dividends after a long time. It's Mm -hmm. not immediate. Right. Whereas Sony is still churning out these fantastic first party first party games, even up into the Series X and PlayStation Five eras. And of course, Nintendo's over on the side doing their thing, doing their Nintendo thing, and it's working for them. I can't believe it's working for them, but it is. Um and I say that as someone who plays a lot of Switch. I, I just bought an OLED Switch today. Did you really? There you go, right? Yeah, I haven't so. played my Switch in a, a year. I just oh. bought a OLED Switch today for no reason. Oh, I think it's just one of the most <laughs> uncomfortable consoles to hold and play yeah. ever, but it's it's good. So yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely been um, very much a PlayStation uh, gamer this, this era, for sure. Cool. Uh, was there any particular PlayStation games that stood out? They often get... Um, praised a lot rightfully so but sometimes detractors will say that they just make the same game over and over again uh you had already mentioned that you really like uncharted as do i i think it's one of the best franchises of all time uh but was there any other playstation games that really stand out to you um i mean yeah you know what you're kind of right uh i know for 
for me, um, the Ratchet and Clank games are still huge. The, the latest one was fantastic. One of the things, though, for PlayStation 4 and has carried on to PlayStation 5 a little bit is uh, VR. I was I jumped into PlayStation VR both feet and have not regretted it. Um, you know, I don't play it constantly, but what I have played when I do play it, I always love it, um, especially stuff like uh, Astrobot and Moss. Mm-hmm. and batman you know there have been some great experiences i haven't played iron man yet but i keep uh I, i'm definitely keeping that near the top of the list and i think there was another one that just came out from 17 bit today i forget what it's called song of something or other but yeah i want to check that out too so that was a big reason why but yeah you're right i mean i don't think it's unfair to say that they keep not necessarily making the same game over and over again but they're definitely churning out sequels to established franchises which Nintendo is as well. I mean, you know, that's what Nintendo does. Um, but they're always high quality. Such high quality. You know, I mean, you can't deny it. Yeah. I uh, I convinced myself that the Xbox One was great. I convinced myself that uh, Always Online was good because of you can share licenses with people and the Kinect is a space camera. It's, it's going to be awesome. But even I, like, like couldn't hold on forever. I got a PS4 and the last half of that generation uh, up until probably game pass. I, I played more, I played less Xbox in that span than I had since the Xbox had come out by like a factor of like three or four times. It, it was, they just, it, it wasn't that they, they made a lot of good, like they made good games cause they did is that they would make a good game. And then before you finished it, they have just released another one. That's just yeah. as good, if not better which is it's unbelievable the quality and quantity that they were able to put out. I, all of them are for the most part, like third person action adventure, mm-hmm. gritty realistic games. But I think they separate themselves enough with their characters and story that every single one of them is worth playing. Um, so yeah, I, I'm in the same boat as you. I but would there say, was, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. I would say too, one of the other games that, and actually series now that I didn't mention in there too is Spider-Man. My God, they made an amazing Spider-Man game. And Miles Morales as the follow-up, too. Like, just chef's kiss. Like, so good. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. That's uh, I'm a huge Batman fan, but I I don't know if I can say that Arkham is better than mm. Spider-Man. I, I just... The one complaint I had with Spider-Man that really affected my experience with it, and I don't want to, like, turn this into Spider-Man podcast, but uh, they showed way too much in the trailers. So the big event at the end, I already knew was coming. If I didn't yeah. know that, I think the game would be the best superhero game of all time because that would have hit a lot harder. I feel like Sony... And, I mean, Microsoft does this a little bit as well. I feel like that's one of Sony's biggest shortcomings right now is one of the things at least that bothers me the most about them is that they have a tendency to show a game really early and then just keep showing it and showing yeah like i I know with last of us too the last couple times they showed that game on our podcast on player one we we were saying it to each other it's like i don't want to see it anymore yeah i stopped watching them yeah i didn't watch the yeah exactly like so that 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 is a big problem i find that they have Microsoft does it a little bit as well. Nintendo is now on the other spectrum where it's like, hey, here's this big game that you didn't even know was coming and it's coming out tomorrow. So, yeah, oh, okay. that's right. Dread. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, 100% agree. Deathloop, another example of a game they mm. showed off like 8,000 times. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about a little bit with this generation too, and and this again, it could be completely wrong. Uh, I didn't have a 
big perspective on the industry uh, in probably the first half of your gaming life. But I feel like uh, gaming culture has changed significantly in this quarter, uh, maybe more so. I think there's an argument to be made that maybe more so uh, than any previous culture when, when it evolves, like the significance of the change, I think, is pretty big uh we're moving into a a lot of free-to-play games which is a huge difference between how we used to play games now there's services like game pass there's streaming culture with twitch culture and stuff like that uh and then games in general are not releasing as a product that you buy and play and then move on they're releasing as something you buy and play and stay in forever games as a service is is one of the pillars of the gaming industry now for better or worse so i'm wondering how any of that applies to you as somebody who has probably i don't want to say spent like the better years of your life playing uh like games in a specific way but the, the years of your life where you could play games the most which i think is is pretty true like i those years are gone for me too mm-hmm. but um now it's changed to games where you can't just buy a game nowadays for the most part play it beat it move on and you're playing it until the dlc comes out or you have to constantly log in for whatever reason i'm wondering if you even engage with that stuff now or uh, how that's affected how you play games i feel like when because i've had this question asked on a few different podcasts and i feel like you know somebody as somebody as you said the the time that i could sit and play a game as much as i wanted which i would say was my 20s and early 30s uh is gone and i'm looking forward to my 50s and 60s when my kids are grown and i have all the time (laughs) in the world to do it again um but I feel like the answer is supposed to be like, oh, gaming was better 20, 30 years ago, blah, 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 blah. And, and I I still personally prefer the whole sit down, play it, finish it, move on. And for the most part, that's what I play. Like the most recent game that I played was uh, Kena, uh, Bridge of Spirits, mm-hmm. uh, which is exactly that. It's like, a, you know, a, I don't know, maybe a 10 hour game, uh, kind of a Zelda style. It's an open world, you know. <clears throat> start to finish it's 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 linear it's open world but it's still pretty linear um and I, I, for the most part my gaming hasn't changed from that perspective um i do like the always online thing i know that in the last 10 years one of the things that has really changed as far as the way that i game is i do a lot of online racing which i didn't i i did a little bit before but now i really concentrate on it like um I've been playing Codemasters Formula One games every single year for I, I don't know how long it's been going now, 11 years. Uh, actually, when I'm done talking to you tonight, I'm going to jump on and run a Grand Prix with a friend of mine with our co-op career and uh, Grand Turismo Sport. I've been part of a league that grew up out of Player One podcast for like 10 years now in the Grand Turismo games. But I personally feel like the way it's changed uh, for me is I actually really like how much choice I have. I'm not a free-to-play gamer. I'm not a games-as-a-service guy for the most part. Um, but I think this era, in the last 10 years, as gamers, we have so many more options now than we ever had. And you can be whatever kind of gamer you want. Yes, not every game is a sort of a linear, single-player, start-to-finish-move-on kind of game. But I feel like there's still so many of them. That at least for somebody who has the relatively limited amount of time I give myself for gaming, there's more than enough. I still can't play everything I want to play. Um, But, you know, like at the same time, if you want to be a first person shooter guy, you know, then like I know that you're really looking forward to when Halo Infinite comes out. Right. I mean, that's a thing or Call of Duty or Fortnite, like those kinds of games. My son 
love or used to love Fortnite. And I because of that, I was exposed to it and I don't really play it, but I got to watch him play it and I got to see kind of what that game is, that service is and and appreciate it for what it is. You know, you can like it or hate it, but I understand what they're doing and they do it well. Um, or even mobile game. I don't do mobile gaming. I did a little bit of mobile game development for a while. But like, I know a lot of people who will pick up a free to play game, not necessarily to go spend lots of money on it, but because it's free and it's a time waster, you know, which really kind of harkens back to where we started 30 or 40 years ago, you know, where it's like you drop a quarter in because it'll give you five minutes of pleasure and then you're done. And it's kind of, I think a lot of the free to play stuff isn't necessarily exactly the same, but it's, I think it's pushing the same buttons. Um, Again, for better or worse, there, there, there's a there's a whole conversation around whale hunting and all that sort of thing when it comes mm. to free to play that you know I have opinions on, everyone has opinions on, and uh, yeah, I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but for the most part, I just feel like nowadays you've got so much choice, and it can be you can kind of just play whatever you want. It almost every niche has good coverage, and if you need games that are uh, single player and you only have five hours and you want to finish it in five hours, you have tons of options. If you yeah. want to get online and shoot people for 12 hours a day, you have tons of options. Like it's just, it's fantastic. Yeah, for sure. And that's interesting. I never actually thought to compare mobile games to the arcade with, with that whole kind of mental switch thing. I think that actually makes a lot of sense. And that's, uh, that. I just wanted to, to highlight that. Cause I thought that was a really interesting analogy. Um, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time left in quarter four because we are at two and a half hours now. And I know you got a, a race, a race to run. But one thing I did want to mention, because I'm assuming that uh, this came into your life in this quarter was extra life. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that extra life is a big part of, uh, of uh, your life, I guess, right now. Uh, you're like a champion, extreme mega extra life. I don't know what the actual title is. Probably something better than that. Uh, but wondering when it was in this quarter that you got interested introduced to extra life uh was it is like like what drew you to that and uh yeah how like how was that all going yeah um yeah i've been doing it for 11 years now so yeah it was pretty much this quarter um that it started and really the way it started was um i had i had done some fundraising for child's play which is the penny arcade charity that i don't know if that's still going or not i thought that was a good idea it's like hey let's use gaming to do some good because that happened around the same time that so much negative crap was happening um but uh, really i got introduced to extra life through a fellow uh podcaster and uh content creator named tj lowerman who goes by the uh the hacker alias that sports gamer um who was doing extra life that first year uh, which i think was the second year of the charity and had put together a team and reached out and said, like, would you be interested? I'd love you to join my team. I think I raised like $700 that year. And it's kind of a near and dear charity to my heart. So anyone who doesn't know what Extra Life is, it's a Children's Miracle Network charity, and it's worldwide, um, which means that basically when you sign up for it, you choose which hospital you want any donations you receive to go to, any children's hospital. So... Um, I love that aspect of it and I, that I can support my local children's hospital um, as a father, as, as a father of three, knowing that I can do something to support my local children's hospital is a big deal to me. Um, I've used it a lot 
And, uh, you know, as someone who uh, had a younger brother who actually spent a lot of his life at the local children's hospital before he before he passed at a very young age, that was kind of what started me on the path. And yeah, so now I'm in my 11th year. I think I've raised something like $80,000 in the last 11 years on Incredible. this charity. Yeah. And it's just something that I love to do. And at the end of the day, I'm sitting my ass down on my chair and playing video games, which I would be doing anyway. So <laughs> if I can turn that into some good in the world, then uh, I, I don't see why not. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I I mean, I knew you were big into it. I, I tr- I'm trying to uh, also be into it because as soon as you spend like for those who don't know the IWK is the children's hospital uh, that's in our area and like anyone who has a kid goes through that uh, if you go to there for any reason um, whether it's like having a, like the actual birth or like an il- illness or anything they're so awesome there and you, you go in there like so freaked out and so worried and, and like they are just incredible so Knowing that and then seeing what you're able to do made me want to try and do what I can and definitely not anywhere close to $80,000. That's actually the first time I heard that figure from you, uh, which is freaking insane. Like that's incredible. Like hats off. Uh, and it's, and that's 80,000 and counting because like every time I see your, your, your fundraising drives, it's just like you, you have those automatic tweets. I think they're automatic anyway, where when you get a big donation, they get tweeted out and it's just like almost every day. It's awesome. So that's really, really good to see. Uh, but all right, Greg, we made it through all four quarters of your life at this point. Uh, there's nothing left <laughs> as weird as that sounds to say. Um, but we've made it through all four quarters. Uh, but I do have a couple of wrap up questions here. Since we just spent two hours, 36 minutes and 25 seconds talking about your favorite video games. I'm wondering if with all of it being fresh in your mind that you could tell me what your favorite game series is. Through your bone instead of picking one game. Oh, wow. Um, my s- favorite game series, I would probably have to say oh, probably Gran Turismo. As weird really? as that sounds. Okay. Yeah. So, are is there if like you asked a- me my favorite game? It wouldn't have been a Gran Turismo game, though. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess Gran Turismo has more, uh, legs i guess than yeah. forza because it's older and there's more titles there's, and and it, it, there's pieces of it in in almost every era so okay that makes sense i i personally am not a huge racing game fan but it also brings me to my next question um this is again a little bit of an assumption i'm making but i know for sure in especially in like the 90s and like leading up into the early 2000s that like for well for starters first person shooters were not the most popular game they were like a niche thing uh mmos were not the most popular game they were even more of a niche thing like cinematic 3d action adventures weren't it was platformers uh in the the first half of that time frame that i spoke to about and then leading up into like the second half it was sports games and racing games mm-hmm. racing games in my opinion were were probably the most uh uh, popular games because one, they were really good at showing off the consoles. So you can't, you could not release yes. a console without having one. That's why Project Gotham exists. That's why Gran Turismo exists because you have to have a exclusive racing game because it was the first person shooter of that era. And I know from what you said earlier about uh, in the first quarter that your dad and uncle uh, had a race team. And I'm making like kind of uh, connecting some dots here. I don't know if this is 
the reason why, but I'm assuming there's some connection between their, them owning a race team, you're growing up around a race team, and your love for racing games. That That's true, right? Absolutely. Well, I'm such a good detective. Yeah, that's pretty good. Okay. <laughs> okay. So my question is, what, was, what does it feel like to have your favorite genre kind of be the most popular game for everybody? Uh, and then to keep that being your favorite genre, well, because right now it's not like right now, mm-hmm. like you don't need a racing game to sell a console. Um, and it's it's not the most important friend, like type of game. I would argue that games as a service, first person shooters, sports games, uh, maybe even um, like some of the uh, building games like Minecraft or Roblox. Like there's a lot of genres, I think, that are above racing games right now. I think racing mm-hmm. games are actually more of a niche game. Uh, a lot of the, the fans of those are like more... Uh, into like they really just like cars and this is a way that they can drive cars that they can't drive in real life you can get steering wheels like it's it's definitely a lot more niche mm-hmm. so i'm wondering how that feels like because my favorite genre is first person shooters and it's been king since it became my favorite genre so i don't know what it's like to uh walk into like a, a room full of gamers and be like hey you check out uh formula one from whatever whatever game you're going to play after this and everyone's like i don't play racing games yeah you know it's it's interesting because you're right and you know what i am so happy the way you described that, because I have been describing race the racing genre like that for years. Because you're right, up until probably the last 10 years, when you launch a console, you launch a console with a racing game because it's one of the easiest ways to show off the generational leap, right? Like, I mean, and going back to the second era we talked about when I was talking about renting the Genesis for the first time, one of the first games I rented was Super Monaco GP, and there was nothing like it on the NES, you know? And yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I'm so glad you said it that way. You literally said it exactly the same way I've been saying it for years. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's weird. And I think it has more to do with, uh, what I was saying earlier, where the, the, the size of the game industry and the variety in the game industry is so big now that it's not quite the same as it was like when you were saying like, you know, first person shooters came in and they were the biggest thing. And <clears throat> at one point racing games were the biggest thing or mascot platformers. And those died in the mid nineties. And actually the late nineties, one of the things that you didn't mention, but I think is worth pointing out too, is uh one-on-one fighters. Right. Were, exactly. You know, with, yep. with street fighter and mortal Kombat, And those kind of found it, those hit a dip for a while as well. And then they came back on Vogue. But I, what I've been really interested to see over the last 10, 15 years, and fighters are definitely in this group as well, is the esports side of things. Um, you know, first person shooters are huge in the esports arena. And I found, especially with the pandemic, that actually gave racing games a little bit of a jolt because a lot of the a lot of us race fans who are used to watching NASCAR and Formula One and that sort of thing, well, those series were all shut down during the pandemic. And Almost all those drivers, or a huge amount of them, were playing in sponsored, televised, or at least televised on the internet, esports events after that, right? Like oh, really? all the F1 drivers went and did. And and the beautiful thing about that is, is that, I mean, they, those were happening anyway, but they kind of gave those, those esports a bit of a jump where they're a thing. Like right now... On the F1 side, the F1 teams have esports divisions. They actually hire drivers to compete for them in esports. Same with NASCAR. A lot of NASCAR teams and NASCAR drivers have actual contracted esports drivers 
that race in iRacing or the NASCAR series, like the, the E series and almost all of those YouTube channels, um, televise those, you know what I mean? Like, so they're a thing, but I think, I don't know that they're racing definitely isn't the most important genre, but there was a huge influx, excuse me, of people, um, during the pandemic, especially while these professional racers were doing it, going out and buying wheels and logging onto iRacing and, you know, getting a cockpit set up and a triple monitor set up and all that sort of thing. And I think a lot of them have stuck with it. So yeah, not, not necessarily the most important genre in the traditional sense, you know, racing games aren't selling systems anymore, but I don't know what games are selling systems anymore, uh, from a particular genre. You know what I mean? Um, especially with crossplay now as well. But uh, even looking at Gran Turismo, I mean, the biggest thing about Gran Turismo Sport that they advertised when that game came out on the PlayStation 4 was that it was going to be like an FIA approved series. So there's like a, a Gran Turismo E-League that's been going for years now as well, um, where you can actually and, and you, you can compete in that and try to qualify for those and that sort of thing, too. And those those are those are uh, broadcast events as well. So. I don't know that that really answers the question. I think I've just sort of meandered down a road here, but but it's interesting to see where it's gone. It's the whole sitting alone in a room and racing against the AI that used to sell systems. Like Ridge Racer 5 sold me on a PlayStation 2 in a lot of ways. And, you know, like you said, Project Gotham Racing 3 sold me on a 360 in a lot of ways. Um, those days are long gone. I don't think that's ever going to happen again. But I know personally, I can't wait for March 4th when Gran Turismo 7 comes out. It's, you know, but I, I, I'm one of, I'm that guy who invested in the wheel and the, the, the racing seat and mm-hmm. jumps on, you know, like practices for his league race every two weeks and that sort of thing. So not as important as it was, but way more important to me now than it ever has been. Yeah, that's awesome. And I guess like niche now is not the same as niche then. Like if you were a fan of a niche genre or a niche game, you might have to pop on IRC and and, and find like a group of 10 people that might like the same game as you. But now I have no idea about racing games. I had no idea there was an E-League. There's probably subreddits for racing game fans with hundreds of thousands of people in there. Mm -hmm. So even though, yeah, it's niche, it just means it's hundreds of thousands and not millions and millions, which is still a ton of people. So uh, I guess it's it, it's it probably hasn't hit as hard as uh, otherwise could have, um, but yeah, that's all I got for now. Uh, thanks so much, Greg, for joining. I hope you had a, a great time on the show. Uh, before we say our goodbyes, though, uh, I'd like to give the floor to you to let everyone know where they can find you, see all your work, and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so mainly, um, well, the podcast we were talking about earlier, Player One Podcast, which uh, we're getting ready to record our 779th episode this week, um, where, again, it's three uh, X Games journalists, also X Games developers, uh, all dads, all in their mid-40s, who talk about what they're playing, talk about some of the news of the day. and uh, But it's all from, yeah, the, the, the through the lens of middle-aged, uh, long-time gamers. Uh, a lot of retro game talk on there as well. So yeah, that's playeronepodcast.com. That's every well we record and broadcast every Sunday night, but the uh the podcast itself comes out on all the podcast services on Tuesday mornings every week. Um also I have uh on my YouTube channel which is uh just youtube.com/greg-stewart uh, is my uh history series called Generation 16 which uh, chronicles the uh history of the Sega Genesis um game by game, one game at a time. I just finished 1990, so we're getting into 1991. Um, 
that release is much more sporadic, but uh, I release a lot of other content on that uh, that channel as well. So please consider coming over and watching that. And then three nights a week, uh, I stream on Twitch for Extra Life to raise money for Extra Life. Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays, I play uh, on Mondays. We have, I play old adventure games, the old Sierra and LucasArts stuff. Tuesdays, I just play random retro games from my way too big video game collection. And Thursdays, I play games that were requested by people who donated to Extra Life called Donor Demand Thursdays. Um, so Twitch TV slash Seward, S-E-W-A-R-T, is where you can find me there. And this year's Extra Life 24-hour marathon is coming up on November 6th. It's going to be all about Xbox and GameCube games for 24 hours. Ooh, Xbox. I'm, I know a thing or two about Xbox. Yeah, um, yeah no, that's awesome. I just want to like kind of interject a little bit too, uh, just to, to hammer the point home. The generation... Uh, the, the generation videos that he does, the history of the Sega Genesis videos that he do he does, sorry, are really, really awesome. Like you will it's not just like, oh, this game came out on this time and it was made by this person and it's this this is the genre. They're deep dives into these games. And when he says he wants to cover every game, he, he's covering every game. When he says he's done nineteen ninety, he did every game that came out in nineteen ninety. And they're in depth deep dives. So if you played a game on Sega Genesis in nineteen ninety, that game is there. Uh, they're really awesome in terms of the the twitch channel he there's a lot of quote variety streamers that cycle between like two or, two or three different games this is a real variety show there is so much random stuff on there and like because of all the experiences that you've listened to so far and all the ones that are still uh buried deep in the recesses of his mind there's tons of factoids and tons of things that you'll, you'll learn just from playing the game and listening to him and stuff like that so i highly recommend checking that out and of course uh if you have any any toonies or loonies to spare extra life is a great cause and uh and he is like i said extra life champion um, I also want to take a quick second to thank everyone who managed to make their way to the end of this video. This podcast uh, really means a lot to me. If you enjoyed the show or have any comments or critiques, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or in the comment section below if you are listening to this on YouTube. Uh, and hey, while you're there, feel free to hit the subscribe button. I just hit 100. Next goal is 200 subscribers. So any help I can get to get there would be fantastic. Until next time, remember to have fun out there, everybody. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks again.